Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the regular meeting of the Board of Multnomah County Commissioners. Audience members, I want to start by asking you to please silence your electronic devices. I'd also like to remind um, people in the audience that we have people watching and listening online, so please consider your language in comments and testimony today. Today's meeting is a hybrid board meeting. Some presenters and guests will appear in person and some will appear virtually. For those presenting virtually, please mute your mic when not speaking. And when presenting, make sure to unmute, unmute your mic and turn on your camera. For all presenters, please state your name for the record before speaking or responding to questions. May I have a motion on the consent calendar? So moved. Second. Uh, Commissioner Brim Edwards moves. Commissioner Stegman seconds. Approval of the consent calendar. Commissioner Beeson? Aye. Commissioner Brim Edwards? Aye. Commissioner Stegman? Aye. Chair Vega Peterson? Aye. The consent calendar is approved. Opportunity for public comment on non-agenda matters. This is a time for the board to hear public testimony, not for board deliberation. When it is your turn to speak, I will call your name and unmute you or call you to the presenter's table. I'll set a timer for three minutes when you begin speaking and announce, and announce when your time is up, at which point please wrap up your sentence. Uh, Madam Chair, we received um, seven verbal testimonies and one written testimony, which was shared with board members and staff. Um, when I call you up, please have a seat at the table. Injured and pissed off. Shedrick J. Wilkins, Abigail Calderon, and Charles Johnson. Please come forward. My name's injured and pissed off, and I spoke here last week about a number of subjects, uh, including the elevator that's been down in my apartment building there's only one elevator for uh, it's got eight additional floors on it and I only live on the second floor but as I was saying last week that there was two ambulances that came while I was in the lobby and they had to wait on the one elevator that was working uh, and of course uh, I don't know how long it'll take, but I heard that Otis Elevator apparently uh, isn't working on the building anymore. Apparently, either they didn't get paid or uh, they've got a new contractor that does nothing. Uh, they've taken the wall switches out of the wall for the elevator for you to press and close the doors and that's it. I'm amazed that they can operate like that with 153 apartments uh, relying on one elevator is pretty dismal. Uh, of course, they got to take out trash and uh, that locks up the elevator for anybody to try to use it. Uh, and there's other things going on and, and then uh, uh, this uh, desk that I was showing that was stolen, it's five and a half feet long by uh, three feet tall and two feet wide, which is approximately this. I didn't measure this, but uh, it's a very large desk, and now uh, the police still haven't contacted me. I've tried to contact them. Uh, it seems to be an evasive 
thing like the medical doctors. If you remember, I turned in a nine-page report, and I was supposed to go to OHSU, which I was had a lifetime ban underneath my old name, Paul Adolph Phillips. Uh, and, of course, uh, I guess he was a pretty bad ass because injured and pissed off, they wanted me to go back there to that place. And uh, I can't do that. Uh, they've lied and cheated and stole the cart that I was going to use for my TV. I bought a 65-inch TV to put on it. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Morning, I'm Shedrick Wilkins, and I last month I said I was going to run for Congress, a moving hour seat. As of, as of the year 2022, I was redistricted to the first district. <laughs> and I went down to Salem to pay the $100 to file for Congress, right? I would like to endorse uh, Jayapal, Sheila Jayapal for Congress. I'll probably give her some money, right? She would be the most difficult. I actually agree that uh, for the Democrats to retake the South, they must, I mean, take, for the Democrats to retake the Congress, they need to appeal to uh, women's reproductive rights. So, so the best way for that is for a woman to run. And uh, uh, Republican women will secretly probably vote for them. So, because uh, Trump keeps changing his mind all the time and all that stuff like that. And, and so, uh, also, I certainly am going to vote for Susan Bonamici. And so, and I'm, I've, I've emailed Jeff Berkeley. I'm a veteran, so I'm seeing if I can get, can he thank me for my service by temporarily moving me back to the third district? I've lived, I've lived here all my life. Multnomah <laughs> County, my dad was on the east side, my ex-wife, that's all the third district. It's just, it's just bad luck. I mean, how come Luminar didn't decide to run four years ago? All right, enough said. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, I'm Bridge Grain Charles Simcoe Johnson, and uh, I'm not Luis Funes. Uh, <laughs> I guess he's back in custody because the federal government takes the fentanyl epidemic more seriously than we do, and we uh, have a broken criminal justice system that does not know how to detain record-level uh, fentanyl traffickers. Um, Aaron Mesh and uh, Mr. Manfield over at, I guess it's the Willamette Week, right? Uh, Aaron's been there forever. Uh, he reported recently that uh, the guy with, I guess, 50 pounds of fentanyl-related material that we released from jail with no cash bond, uh, uh, of course, if he was foolish enough to get caught once, I guess he's foolish enough to get caught twice. Um, but it makes it very hard for constituents and citizens and neighbors to feel like the governments are doing a serious job on their behalf. Um, some people have spun this to think that uh, 
disillusioned police officers used magical wishful thinking to not find a class A felony out of all that stuff that happened because it looks like if you go to the, uh, you can't look at the uh, booking photos anymore because God forbid that would destabilize our society. Um, but uh, if you go to the sheriff's website, you'll see like the first time he was booked, some class B's and some class C's, but who knew? Heavy Fetty movement is not a class A, I guess. And the, apparently he was released faster than the district attorney's office could be notified of the situation, maybe. Uh, the, um, uh, I've got my happy little Rainbow Plus bag up here, uh, particularly because I was gonna ask if there's any report on progress for uh, housing options with greater queer aware awareness and accommodation. Uh, back when we were dealing with how we were gonna spend the uh, SHS surplus, there was some talk about that, but there have been results. I've missed those results. Uh, what I am aware of is that nobody wants to make a plan to use the money wisely. We don't need a five-year lease that gives a few homeless people $2,100 a month studio apartments in motels that are owned by people that don't even live in frickin' Oregon. We need to have an immediate plan to phase that location out, use that money for rent assistance and more cost-effective ways of helping these people stabilize their lives and get real housing or buy the motel. Thank you. Thank you. Um, next we have Anna Kurniski, uh, sorry, uh, John Middleton, and um, just checking again for Abigail Calderon. Good morning. Good morning. Ooh. Let's see, is this working? Yes. Good morning, Chair and Commissioners. My name is Anna Kornitsky, and I'm the Executive Director of Community Warehouse. I invite you to imagine yourselves right now at home, but with no furniture. Everyone's getting ready for the holidays, but you can't imagine having people over with nowhere to sit. You, you and your kids are sleeping on the floor or on a pile of clothes. You're trying to figure out how to cook your family's favorite holiday meals without kitchen items or a table. Every year, about 100,000 Portlanders, our neighbors, are living without some or most of the furniture and household items they need. We call this furniture poverty. So Community Warehouse, we're a furniture bank, and our mission is to provide furniture and household items to our neighbors overcoming adversity. For folks transitioning out of homelessness or leaving domestic violence situations, when they get their new place, one of the biggest questions is, what am I gonna do about furniture? And that's where Community Warehouse steps in. We accept referrals from more than 160 local agencies, and folks who get a referral to the warehouse through these programs, people who've gotten themselves and their families through unimaginable circumstances, they have the opportunity to shop in our furniture banks for all the things that they need to turn their house into a home. That's mattresses and box springs, dressers and nightstands, tables and chairs, sofas and armchairs, kitchen items, art, rugs, lamps, more. And furniture is part of what makes a home. It creates that sense of safety and security, of belonging. Having kitchen items means I can make meals for my kids at home. That makes me feel like a good parent. Having a bed means I don't have to sleep on the floor. That makes me feel human. 
And what's so special about Community Warehouse is it brings us all closer together. We all need a furnished home. It's keeping quality items circulating in our community, it's sustainable and cost-effective, and it just feels good. Last week, Community Warehouse sent a request for SHS funding to the joint office. There has never been an RFP opportunity for furniture banks, so we are reaching out to you. This is hopefully good timing for a few reasons. Our services align with the recently announced IGA framework, so specifically around housing retention. People are more likely to stay in furnished homes. Also, we currently have an SHS contract with Washington County and are starting with Clackamas County in January. This contract with the joint office would allow us to expand furniture bank services to Gresham and serve hundreds more people transitioning from homelessness into housing. In this county, our clients are waiting up to six weeks to get furniture, and there is no other furniture bank service in our region. We need your support to make sure all SHS participants who get housing are not moving into empty rooms. This is not a zero-sum game. We have enough funding and furniture to make this happen. We need your support to scale. Let's end furniture poverty together. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, it's nice to see you, Madam Chair and Commissioners. Uh, my name is John Middleton. Um, I proudly serve on the uh, Board of Directors for the Community Warehouse as Vice President. Um, I'm also um, love to volunteer my time uh, making deliveries. So I just want to give you a couple of uh, personal anecdotes um, about the impact of delivering furniture. Um, I have been in homes um, where there is no furniture, and when I do, I always like to ask them, when have you gotten your place? And a lot of times, sometimes up to a month before they've had their place. And they have told me they just don't come because there's nothing here. Um, recently, I, and right around the corner at the Grand Benedict Building, um, if you came from over on the west side, you probably saw it driving over the Morrison Bridge. Um, I moved furniture into a young man, great young guy, getting himself put back together. He was overjoyed with the fact that he was having a mattress to sleep on that night instead of an air mattress. Um, last night, I was with a friend of mine who runs a, uh, the delivery program for them, and his phone is blowing up at 7.30 at night, just bing, 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 and it happened to be from a client that they had delivered to earlier in the day, and she was proudly showing all the furniture that, they had been, that had been delivered to her, and then it was arranged, and that the TV was working, and she was sitting in front of it with her legs up, and the TV has her little screen on, and she had set her table up and put out placemats and plates and cups, and you can just feel the pride and the sense of happiness and satisfaction that these clients have. Um, Nothing is more satisfying, and unfortunately, well, maybe you will, I hope you get an opportunity to do it, is to walking into a home and delivering beds and furniture or a couch to young children that have been sleeping on the floor or a pile of clothes. Um, it really warms the spirit. I think supporting the community warehouse and how it is helping people actually stay in their homes, create a home atmosphere, be a place that they want to be in um, is very important to helping our proactive um, actions to keep people in homes and, and uh, make them feel safe and warm um, like all our neighbors deserve to be. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Um, last testimony, Lightning. 
Good morning. Uh, good morning. My name is Lightning. I represent Lightning Super Humanity X. To uh, Mr. Bob Agger, quit picking on Elon Musk. Quit picking on Elon. Another issue I have is that why are we not declaring a humanitarian crisis in Gaza? I'm not going to stand by and watch millions of people starve to death and not say anything. I'm asking Yahya Sinwar of Hamas and Mohammed Diaf of Hamas to leave immediately, go to another country, let them know you have left and that Israel has won. They have dismantled Hamas. Make that announcement and do a humanitarian ceasefire for the people of Gaza, Hamas. That is also your duty. Humanitarian ceasefire and save their lives. Issue number three is on that merger of Emanuel Hospital and OHSU. Again, I've stated stop the merger for various reasons on what's going on in the Abana lawsuit that we're watching very close on all the people asking for damages in the past for discriminatory policies and actions that were taken that are on record. Again, I'm asking OHSU to make sure that all those people are paid in full before you move forward on your merger agreement and you get that finalized first. Otherwise, allow the damages to proceed forward, be transferred to Legacy Health, and you can all go bankrupt. You can all go bankrupt for what happened to these people in the past. Otherwise, OHSU can do the merger and if they want, they can transfer all those damages to the public because OHSU is publicly owned. What a beautiful maneuver. I have stopped you in your tracks. And the public will have something to say about that. And I want any and all merger attorneys to step forward and do your analysis on this, which I have, and understand I think this is a move to transfer the damages ultimately to the public to pay in the end. Will not happen. So Emanuel Hospital, you're gonna to have to come up with some other way of making sure those damages are gonna be paid or you can go bankrupt. Have a wonderful day. And GFU. Uh, I'll go on to R1. R1, second reading of ordinance amending MCC chapter five relating to campaign finance. Second. Commissioner Myron moves. Commissioner Stegman seconds approval of R1. Good morning. Good morning, Chair Vega Peterson and commissioners. My name is Tim Scott. I'm the Director of Elections for Multnomah County. And I'm Kali O'Dell, also with the Elections Division. At last week's board meeting, we gave an overview of a housekeeping ordinance that will update our campaign finance code so that existing campaign finance practices are clearer and more transparent to candidates and members of the public. In the intervening week, we've, had, uh, we've not received any questions or comments from the 
about the ordinance from the public. Uh, we're available to answer any questions that you might have. All right, thank you both for being here. Um, we'll see, uh, first of all, was there any public testimony? No, Madam Chair. Okay, then we'll go to the board if they have any questions or comments. Uh, Commissioner Myron. None. Commissioner Beeson. None. Commissioner Van Landry. Commissioner Stegman. No question. All right, I think it is short and sweet. Thank you. All right, can we have a roll call vote, please? Commissioner Myron. Aye. Commissioner Beeson. Yes. Commissioner Brim Edwards. Commissioner Stegman. Aye. Chair Vega Peterson. Ordinance is adopted. Thank, Thank you. you. R2, notice of intent for a U.S. Department of Energy grant, bipartisan infrastructure law weatherization assistance program enhancement and innovation. So moved. Commissioner Stegman moves. Commissioner Myron seconds. Approval of R2. Good morning. Good morning, Madam Chair, Commissioners. Um, nice to see you, Commissioner Beeson, welcome. My name is Peggy Samolinski. I use she, her pronouns. I'm the Division Director for Youth and Family Services. I'm joined virtually this morning by my colleague, John, in the Office of Sustainability, who is sadly struggling with COVID, so I plan to lead this, but uh, John will offer comments um, and answer questions as well. So uh, the first item I have today is we're asking for your permission to, uh, for us to apply for a Department of, Federal Department of Energy grant to enhance our current weatherization program. Uh, this is a grant application um, that is in from the, um, oh, the, the BIL infrastructure. Sorry, I forget the name, the federal. I'm going to skip that. Sorry, my bad. Um, to for existing weatherization bipartisan programs. infrastructure bill. Thank you, bipartisan infrastructure. Thank you, my colleague John. I apologize for that. I just had a little brain meld there. Um, for existing weatherization programs to apply for dollars to enhance the work that they're current, currently doing, and to allow existing programs to do what are called deep retro energy retrofits in homes um, to make them more electric electrification electrification ready and um, and have higher efficiency appliances and other things installed in the home so that they can reduce their, their long-term um, energy costs. So we're planning to apply for, uh, we're requesting to apply for $2 million over three years. Um, we think the award notification would come in May of FY24 to start approximately July 1st. We are applying in the category of single family and manufactured housing. This will, um, in, in four areas, we're gonna work to make homes weatherization and electrification ready, improve indoor air quality and decarbonization in homes and in the community, um, do weatherization work like we currently do, and um, what we, like as I mentioned, deep energy retrofit, which includes um, high energy heat pumps, water heaters, windows, and just other high efficiency appliances that we're currently not able to do with our existing funding. So I'll, I'll pause there. I'm sure I didn't cover it all, but if there's, you have it in front of you, if there's any other questions, I'm happy to answer them, or John is available as well. Okay, did we have any public testimony on this? Um, yes, uh, Charles Johnson. Do I leave? Yeah, you okay. can go ahead and step back, and, um, and then we'll, we'll have you come forward. Is there anything? Hey, again, uh, Charles Bridgrain, Simcoe Johnson, and uh, obviously these are always the easy yeses are take the federal money. Um, and I'm sure like later on we'll find out that uh, it came with all courts, the uh, feds have all kinds of ideas about how it should be implemented. But uh, 
one thing, many things are on my mind about these people who could benefit from uh, some weatherization improvement. Um, my guess is it's probably structured only to homeowners, and that makes me think about elderly people, but uh, um, lots of people are in weird situations where they have a high energy burden, and we don't really have any way to find that out. So maybe with your own money or with some of this money, you can talk to some people at PGE or Pacific Power and use that data to find out what kind of people are stuck paying disproportionately high energy bills. Probably there's some racial correlation there. Um, so when this county leads with race, um, you know, we can look to get into uh, the neighborhoods even in neighborhoods where there aren't lawsuits against legacy hospitals system, and make sure that uh, we're able to uh, distribute this with equity to uh, whether it's recent immigrants or long-term uh, uh, families of color that have lived in this area, and uh, make sure that they can have to shuck out a little bit less money to PGE, Northwest Natural, uh, et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, especially for, I don't know, there's also a lot of tr more trailer parks than I thought in Commissioner Brim Edwards' district. <laughs> um, so um, hopefully uh, the bipartisan people in Washington, D.C. have structured this so that you can also serve apartments, or serve ideally people with uh, apartments also, uh, people in mobile home communities and not just homeowners. But uh, we'll look forward to finding out more about how we get to implement this and help some people bring their utility bills down. Thank you. Thank you. We'll go to the board to see if there are any questions or comments, and we'll start with uh, Commissioner Beeson. None. I'm wishing us luck. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Commissioner Brim Edwards. None. All right. Commissioner Segman. Thank you, Chair. I did have a couple of questions. Thank you for being here, Peggy. John, I hope you feel better. Uh, I wanted to know, could you talk a little bit about our existing weatherization programs and or grants? What are we currently doing or have? Currently, we, um, I have an expert in the room who, uh, if, I, if I need more detail, he's happy to come up and join me. Currently in a home, we go in, people apply, right, and they have to meet the energy, the eligibility criteria of 200% of federal poverty level. Um, and then we do, we review their application and they get put on a waiting list. And then they, someone, an inspector, a weatherization inspector goes into the home and does an audit to understand what's going on in that home. Looks at um, the, the type of appliances they have, looks at their windows, looks at their um, looks at their insulation attic and in the walls and also assesses um, how much air might be leaving the home through leaks so they do this big door blower thing if it, I went to it once it was very interesting to, to watch that happen so then and from there then they make an assessment of what items that we can actually repair and what we cannot repair because w these funds are currently it's all federal and state dollars and they're very restrictive in terms of the types of things that we can do um, so for example we're not able to ourselves pay for like mold remediation if there's mold in the home or if the carpet is you know, if the air quality is impacted by things in the home we have to refer that family somewhere else or that house that home homeowner somewhere else. Um, but this, this grant would allow us to do more, that's what they call the deep um, energy retrofit, or that's a part of that. 
that's great. So, uh, but but we currently do have, I'm just kind of wondering, we have funding right now, but this will just really uh, enlarge the, the services that we can provide. Yes, it deepens the service. Yes, we have funding now, and it's been ongoing funding for, for many, many years. That's great, Peggy, yeah. thank you. Uh, and then also ha was made mention, so this is just for single family and manufactured homes, and do we have anything for multifamily? I'm gonna double check that for this grant, I believe it's homeowners, but our general weatherization program does work with multifamily units. In fact, we just um, signed an agreement with a property owner to to do some weatherization in a multi-unit structure. So it doesn't have to be only homeowners in our current program. So I'm suspecting it doesn't have to be in this new one either, um, but they do have to meet some criteria. And if it is renters, then the property owner has to agree. Okay, great. And is there a particular geographic area that this grant will serve? This one is countywide. Okay. Okay. And, and we do target particular neighborhoods um, and do outreach in particular communities as well. Okay, because I thought I saw something in the APR that mentioned East County, so I just didn't know. Uh, I don't know. It, you it can could be this one or the next one. Okay, yeah. all right. Thank you, Peggy. Thank you, yeah. Thank you, Commissioner Myron. Thank you, Peggy, John. Um, I, uh, I think this is great. Um, I mentioned uh, the really... Um, how great it is to see the local impacts of uh, federal administration um, policies and uh, bills. Like they, these are really making a difference locally, and um, this is part of what uh, we talked about when we when I went to the White House to um, to present on the work we're doing at the local level. Um, the I have a question. Um, I appreciate Commissioner Stegman asking about sort of what, what programs we already have. Uh, and I'm wondering if there is any, if you have kind of a summary of what the work is that we're doing in this space um, and what, what we will sort of be able to get additionally based on this grant. Um, yes, I can answer that briefly, and also uh, we're willing to come back and do a briefing about weatherization or our climate resiliency work. In fact, we'd love to do that because it's really exciting, and I think the next, my next item is a little bit more about that in particular. But as I mentioned, we have, and we, John is chomping at the bit to do this, so we, we've been talking about it, and I think we prepared a little one, two-page summary for you that we also attached um, for today, excuse me. But um, again, currently we are serving anywhere from 175 to 250 houses a year we're completing weatherization projects on and that that number varies partly due to staff capacity and during the pandemic when you know when lots of people were not working in the field that that varied then but that's generally our range and I know that's a big range but that's based on the amount of funding that we get as well as the staff capacity we have to to manage all of those those applications and then get into those homes um, and again we're going in and doing the assessment that I described um, and offering things like insulation appliances um, sometimes weather stripping or other things to kind of seal in the home a little bit more tightly. Um, and then this is gonna allow us to do even more than that, as I mentioned, um, higher level efficiency appliances. This is, requires like super high efficiency appliances where right now the regulations are high efficiency and there's, there's grades to that. Um, 
it's not my area of expertise, but that's that's what my staff tell me. Um, and again, it would also allow us to think more and be able to remediate air quality issues in a given home, if in fact there are any. And then also electrification, right? So if, if we're trying to move a home from gas or um, a wood burning or other fu bulk fuel type of, of burning, um, sometimes there's electricity issues that we need. A panel, panel needs upgrading or there needs things like that. This grant would allow us to do those kinds of things in homes. And so we think this will be another 100 homes over the course of three years. Yes. Is your microphone on? Sorry. Okay. <laughs> How we prioritize for the thousands, thank you, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in need and, uh, and this is number one. Number two, if there, this, this does seem like these are great services. It seems like a fairly cumbersome and difficult process for the people who are already struggling mm -hmm. to like mm -hmm. call know about the thing say we need it call get the auditor in, like mm -hmm. that just seems like a lot and I'm wondering if there are, are proactive ways that we address some of this to um, decrease the burden on the the person who needs the services and then um, I'm curious if there's like you go back and determine the impact of, of doing this work for the families to be able to say this is what this accomplished and you know a year later I, I don't know formal or informally um, qualitative or quantitatively thank you commissioner for those questions I'm wondering can we come back on a briefing with that okay yes we because we definitely do there are there's um, calculated energy savings in homes based on re um, weatherization efforts approximately 35 uh, 25 to 40 percent savings in a given home and then this this new grant would allow because of the higher levels of expectations it would raise it to 50 percent savings so if someone's paying three hundred dollars a month for example right now paying heat in a regular weatherization okay I can't do that math but they'd be they'd be saving you know seventy five dollars or so and now it could be as much as you know half of that so that's that's tremendous for families for people living in in older leaky homes but we'd love to come back and we'll work with the chair's office on that. Hey, great, well, I think that this is an incredible opportunity and I love seeing um, these federal dollars come to the local level, so I wish you luck on this grant. Uh, can we have a roll call vote, Marina? Commissioner Myron? Aye. Commissioner Beeson? Yes. Commissioner Brim Edwards? Yes. Commissioner Stegman? Aye. Chair Vega-Peterson? Aye, the notice of intent is approved. R3, budget modification DCHS 00424 adds $250,000 from Earth Advantage Incorporated for home heating upgrades. Second. Commissioner Meyer removes Commissioner Stegman seconds. Approval of R3. Welcome back. Well, welcome back. Good morning again, Madam Chair and Commissioners. Peggy Semelinski, she, her pronouns. I'm with uh, the De Department of County Human Services, Youth and Family Services Division. I'm once again joined by my colleague, John, who's on, on screen. Um, this 
this request is um, asking for you to approve the budget modification of $250,000 from the State of Oregon Department of Energy dollars to support the purchase and installation of heat pumps and related upgrades to homes heated with a bulk fuel source. Um, so this work expands the work we began a couple of years ago with the Wood Stove Exchange Program that um, the board granted one-time only dollars that became two years of dollars for staff capacity for us to um, work with John and the Office of Sustainability and funding that they had to replace wood, wood stoves in homes. And we began that project in March of 2023 and replaced 23 homes in that, uh, wood stoves in that first, that first phase. Since that, since the inception of that program, we've expanded our partnerships that have allowed us to expand the number of homes and expand the types of bulk fuel um, that's being consumed in homes. So that includes things like pellet stoves or wood stove inserts or even um, older gas, gas um, furnaces. We're now able to re replace those in some homes with some of our partnership money. And this funding from Earth Advantage continues that for us. And so it, I think it's a really good example of a small, in, of an investment by the county and general fund in a, uh, where you hadn't invested before that's allowing us to leverage um, a lot of other resources. So this is one example of it. We also have a partnership with Energy Trust. Um, last summer, we were able to replace or add up um, many different heat pumps in homes with some of the invested dollars. So I think it's an example where we're stepping into the climate resiliency work, um, in particular in communities of color, and able to um, support people to have safer homes and, and overall impacting air quality in our community. And the last thing I'll say is this does um, focus in the communities of Portsmouth, Cully, Lentz, and the Gilbert Powell Host neighborhoods, this, this um, bulk fuel exchange. It's not exclusive to those, but those, those are the areas that we're, we're prioritizing. John, did I miss anything? Um, no, that's good. I'll, I'll, I'll stand by in case there's any questions. Thanks. Thank you. Did we have any public testimony on this item? Tabitha, is this for this item? No. No, uh, no Madam Chair. All right, we'll go to the board for any questions and comments, and we'll go I'll start with Commissioner Broom Edwards. Uh, no questions. Uh, Commissioner Stegman. Thank you, Chair. Just curious, Earth Advantage Inc., do we know who are they? So we got a grant or funding from them, and then it went to the state. Yes, um, we do know them. That's an organization that works on climate justice in the community. Um, and this money was a result of Senate Bill 1536 that was passed in the last session in which the Oregon Department of Energy was charged with, with setting up a heat pump program. And they, they um, organized the county into regions and they asked for organizations to apply on behalf of a region, a, a given area, and the metro area, the three counties were clustered into one. And so Earth Advantage, this local nonprofit who we've had partnership with through our heat pump, program through distribution of heat pumps, um, was willing to be the applicant for that and then be the fiscal agent to, to pass money to the three counties. Great. Thank you, Peggy. Hey, uh, Commissioner Myron, any questions? No questions, thank you. Commissioner Beeson? None. All right, I don't have any questions either, so can we have a roll call vote? Commissioner Myron? Aye. Commissioner Beeson? Yes. Commissioner Brim Edwards? Aye. Commissioner Stegman? Aye. Chair Vega-Peterson? Aye. The budget modification is approved. Thank you so much. I forgot to show some pictures, so we'll send those later. Okay. Art four, budget not notification NOND 00724 adds $30,000 uh, 30, from the City of Portland for the Climate Justice Plan. So moved. Uh, Commissioner uh, Stegman moves. Commissioner Myron seconds approval of R4. Hello, John. 
Hello, Chair. Hello, Commissioners. John Boschatinsky, um, Multnomah County Director of Sustainability, joining you remotely this morning. Um, as Peggy mentioned, I'm uh, COVID positive, so uh, better to have me virtually this morning than, than in person. Um, so uh, the uh, budget modification before you today um, would increase our, our uh, funding by $30,000. Um, this past summer, we briefed the board on um, the progress we've made to date for developing the county's first ever climate justice plan. Um, at the time, uh, we released the climate justice framework, which um, encapsulated our, um, our approach uh, with a community-driven uh, vision and values um, for, for a climate justice plan. Um, now we're working to turn those uh, visions and values into goals and actions. And um, in keeping with our approach, um, the planning process, um, we are working uh, directly, we're sharing um, decision-making uh, responsibility with um, uh, community-based organizations um, and partners um, that represent or represent populations that are um, most directly impacted first and worst by the effects of the climate crisis. Um, this funding uh, would allow us to um, compensate um, three of those uh, 12 organizations that are working with us um, uh, in order to um, uh, share some of the financial uh, responsibility between the city and uh, our partners at the city and the county. I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have. All right, thank you, John. We'll go to the board. Oh, was there any public comment on this? Uh, yes, we have uh, Charles Johnson and Lightning. All right, then we'll go to the board for questions in just a minute. Good morning, Charles Bridge-Kaysen, Johnson. Thank you. Uh, nice to have uh, each of the five county, or excuse me, city councilors, city commissioners to send us uh, 6,000 each, I guess, uh, towards climate work. Um, I think that the county and the city did get their alignment uh, correct on Zenith Energy um, and that we're kind of waiting on the state to do something like that. But I hope that uh, uh, in the future, I didn't get a chance to type it in, but we probably should have maltco.us slash climate uh, or some kind of collaboration to know uh, so people can see these various initiatives, how this $30,000 manifests and maybe a way to rank, uh, you know, our, our biggest concerns. We know that one will be sitting on the shelf for a while. Uh, it's been maybe like six months now since we found a legal team that uh, wants to put uh, big oil's feet to the fire and hold some of the most deceptive uh, contributors to climate change responsible and cover our costs. Uh, for climate-related disasters, but uh, I don't know if in all of that between uh, the city, I think the city I heard maybe has hundreds of millions of dollars going into climate uh, change mitigation and preparation, and so it would be great for uh, constituents and for advocacy groups like 350.org and uh, Extinction Rebellion if uh, we could see that uh, the work is documented in a kind of consolidated place. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes, my name is uh, Lightning. I represent Lightning Super Humanity X. John, I hope you have a very speedy recovery and I hope you do well. Again, uh, referring back to this item, 
is one of my main concerns was on the oil tanks and the oil tanks slipping into the river because of the type of climate we're seeing out there. And if anybody in this room, I think you'd all agree with me on this issue is that I've never seen so much rainfall in my life. And I lived out on the river and I can calculate this for you. For every inch of rainfall, the river will go up a foot to a foot and a half, almost guaranteed. So you can calculate that when you're looking at all of the, the levee and the different things down at the waterfront, how fast that level will go up. And then there's other factors, of course, on the, the snowpack, what they do at the dam, and how fast that melts. And those are tough to determine. But living on the river, I could almost gauge it. For every inch of rainfall, the river goes up a foot. Now, knowing that, if we continue to have this type of rainfall, we could flood out the city and the airport. Now, if we have a fast snowpack melt, now knowing that, knowing that, and trying to prevent that, the levee, and as remember when Vera Katz tried to save the wall, save the city down there with plywood, that's not gonna work. We need to bring in some professionals to, to lay out a plan on how we can build up off the levee immediately and build up down by the waterfront whether it's a concrete type barriers brought in immediately, bring in the National Guard, have it stationed over there, have the equipment, and just shut down those areas and bring it in fast. We will save the city, we will save the airport if we do that. If not, we will lose billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars. So what do you wanna do? Do you wanna listen to lightning? Do you want to look in that direction and understand? I know how fast that water level can move probably better than anyone else. I lived out on the river for 10 plus years, 750 feet out between Portland and Vancouver for over 10 years where I walked out of my floating home and looked at 40 feet down into the river using a depth finder, of course. And I know how fast that river can move and how fast it can get out of control. We can limit the damage so easy, working with National Guard and having that plan. You shut down Marine Drive fast, you bring in the concrete barriers, you bring in the heavy equipment, and you build that levee up another five feet. It can easily be done. Thank you. And I know you won't listen to my ideas, Billions and billions and billions in damages, and I'll be the one pointing my finger at you. All right, we'll go to the board for any questions and comments, and I believe it's Commissioner Segman's turn. No questions, thank you, Chair. Commissioner Myron. Um, I, I don't have a question specifically around this item, but more generally, I actually appreciate what Bridge Crane um, Charles brought up in terms of the Um, and uh, in terms of coordination with the city and the, I mean, it's like, I hear they're getting hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that were unanticipated, I think, through the PSEF. I, and what kind of coordination is happening around that, if any? Um, the decisions around the spending of the uh, clean energy fund uh, are really handled by the city um, so 
we've been uh, involved in some of the listening sessions that they've had and, and given our input um, when asked for it. Um, and we're evaluating to see if there's um, uh, opportunities where we could work with partners to um, make sure that uh, some of the priorities uh, we would have um, are being are being funded. Um, part of coordinating on the climate justice plan um, is really kind of looking beyond the current five-year window and thinking about you know where uh, where are the community's priorities uh, going forward in terms of um, this type of uh, investment. Um, and the partnership with the city, um, as, as evidenced um, in part through this uh, budget modification, I think shows a positive direction that, you know, as they, they move beyond their current climate emergency work plan that will have um, funding, uh, we'll have uh, new priorities to fund in the future. So uh, definitely uh, good to be collaborating um, through this process uh, with them on that. Okay. Um, well, that's it. I thank you. All right. Thank you, Commissioner Beeson. I just want to appreciate you paying community-based organizations for their time and efforts on the work and no questions. Thank you, Commissioner Burm Edwards. No questions. Commissioner Stegman. Oh, that's right. We're very efficient this morning. Um, thank you, John. My comment was just going to be similar to Commissioner Beeson's. I really appreciate using these funds to, um, to be able to compensate organizations for their work and just really want to appreciate all of the really strong partnership we've had from organizations as we've been working on the climate justice plan and moving that work forward. So this is a really great opportunity. All right, can we have a roll call vote? Commissioner Myron? Aye. Commissioner Beeson? Aye. Commissioner Brim Edwards? Aye. Commissioner Stegman? Aye. Chair Vega Peterson? Aye, the budget modification is approved. R5, budget modification, LIB 01024, system-wide transition of a library clerk position to library assistant. Can I have a motion, please? Some second. <laughs> Commissioner Meyer moves, Commissioner Stegman seconds, approval of R5. Good morning. Good morning, good morning, Chair Commissioners. Uh, my name is Katie Shifley, I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the library's director of finance and facilities. Um, I'm here before you today to request board approval of a budget modification that will formalize the planned phase out of the library clerk classification. Um, as we, as you heard about earlier this week and we kind of discussed as part of the library audit conversation, uh, the library has been working for the last several years and will continue to work on evolving our staffing model to account for changing business and community needs. Uh, this particular recommendation, which is phasing out the library clerk classification, um, was developed by a labor management task force that began their work in 2019 and made formal recommendations in 2020. Uh, as a result of the pandemic and some tangential labor conversations, this work was, was paused for a while. Um, more recently, over the last year, a new labor management team was put together to focus on the actual um, implementation of that recommendation. Uh, this past fall, that team reached an agreement on the steps for the phase-out process, and we have assigned MOA with Local 88 on this topic. Uh, under the agreement with Local 88, all library clerks will be able to promote to the library assistant classification, which is taking them from pay grade 10 to pay grade 16. Um, I'm here today to request the authorization to convert all of those existing clerk positions, um, totaling 38 FTE, uh, to library assistants. Uh, this is a one-to-one -one change, so it's a net zero action overall in terms of FTE. The current year cost estimate for this implementation is about $44,000, um, and the total year one cost would be um, twice that at $88,000. Um, because this 
transition plan has been sort of in, in, the, in the works for quite some time. We do have a, a, a line item in our FY24 budget to fully cover the cost of this change. Um, and as we are looking forward to the FY25 budget, we're already kind of in incorporating this classification change into our personnel projections and as part of our budget positions for the coming year. Um, in terms of next steps of the implementation plan itself, um, we're planning right now for the training and the onboarding of those um, existing clerk positions. Um, the, the training and onboarding they'll need to become LAs, and so that, sh that, that should take place over the next couple of months. Um, this has been a, a real bright spot for us in terms of our uh, ability to collaborate with Local 88 on this, on this transition, so we're, we're pretty excited about it, um, and we appreciate your support in, in formalizing that transition. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions that you may have. Thank you, Katie. Um, do we have any public comment on this? Uh, yes, Charles Johnson. Good morning, Charles Richkin, Tim Johnson again. And uh, maybe we're all on the same page. Maybe we're on page five, looking at where we have listed R3, R4, and now here we are on R5. Um, the money matters. Um, and so when you look at R3, there's a specific amount on the top line. And when you look at R4, there's a specific amount on the top line. But oh, R5, there's no specific amount. And uh, that's, I think, because I haven't uh, pushed hard enough, Madam Chair, for you to do to set some kind of transparency framework and consistency so that people don't have to go onto the website and click down to the APR and then click into the presentation and find out uh, which things on the budget are only for 30, or which things on the agenda are $30,000 items and which things on the agenda are $60 million items or whatever. So um, I know you have an awesome clerk who has a lot of patience for me, so I'll also be uh, something other, some word other than harassing her about how it would be great if we had a consistent structure to list these things. And we can't really talk about the library without the fact of saying uh, we're all anxiously awaiting for Central Library to open. I haven't been getting over to the east side as much, so I'm not sure what's going on with Midland. Uh, Holgate looked, I think, more cool before they put up the front wall. But uh, it's great to see that uh, we're manifesting some of these things. It does make me curious to know what happens with the FTEs at county pay grade 11, 12, 13, and 14, which these uh, formerly classified library clerks are gonna skip over and jump up to library, uh, jump up to pay grade 16. So I hope that some of this funding is uh, improving, uh, includes continuing education and you know, a variety of services. And sadly, uh, it wouldn't really be fair to the local 88 workers to talk about them as just some FTEs and pay grades without uh, hoping that there's a robust conversation that uh, all of you, but particularly you, Madam Chair, to uh, address some staff's safety concerns. You know, it, we have a large workforce at the library and in different parts of the county. Different people have different criteria for safety, but we want everyone to feel safe enough that we don't have to have headlines in the Oregonian or wherever the heck it was about library workers being concerned about safety. Uh, I think those of us who consider ourselves friends of the library without necessarily doing a lot of funding for the library will also want to look and see how much is safety work, uh, how many more paid, how much money is going to security and safety rather than library services. And that's a problem 
as we try and fight for more money from the federal government to have better services for houseless people who don't need, ha have no option sometimes but a library. That's all they've got as day services. So thanks very much. Thank you. So we'll go to the board for um, any questions or comments, and we'll start with Commissioner Myron. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm glad this is being, um, this is happening and uh, that that some of these changes are occurring because when I went to visit with the the library frontline staff, this was, you know, it's it's a huge issue that was mentioned in terms of of the caps, years of service that, um, like you couldn't get a raise for five years, something like that. There were a number of things around this that were mentioned, and I'm curious. So there's still the the impacts. That, in consideration of caps that Im are imposed on long-serving library employees, um, at what rate of compensation will the current clerks um, be adjusted as they are transitioned to library assistants? And you know, and they essentially have been doing a lot of the same work for a long time. Is it will there be um, years of service acknowledged? Like what? How will this? actually happen yeah <clears throat> excuse me I, I i might have to get back to you on some of the more okay. hr related uh, questions but i but i can tell you that um in terms of so um uh, the financial impact is actually a little bit less than you might think because so many of our library clerks are at the top of range for for library clerk so what will happen is that the vast majority of them are at step eight which is 25.99 per hour um, and the vast majority of them will go to step three of the library assistant classification which is 26.76 an hour and, and what's in the cap? I'm not entirely sure okay. what you're referencing when it comes to that. But maybe you're talking about being at the at the top of range. Does that sound? Yeah, because what it sounded like is that um, they would start, and and I think some of this started when the minimum wage was adjusted back whenever, but that they I think they started at twenty dollars an hour or something, and the cap was like twenty dollars and eighty eight cents an hour. Um, after eight years of service. And so I just want to make sure things like that are being addressed in this. And I'm not sure, I don't know the details, so um, I apologize. Maybe we can follow up about it, but I, I mean, I, I support whatever, whatever is being agreed to by um, the representatives of our employees. I just want to make sure we're doing as much as we can. All right, thank you. Commissioner Beeson. I, <coughs> First, want to just say congratulations. It seems like this has been in the works for a while. Um, I'm wondering if you could share what what were the sticking, what would you characterize as the major sticking points with employees, and how did you move past those? I'm probably not the best person to speak to that because I was not actually involved in any of the conversations with local aid around this. Um, in terms of um, sticking points, I, I think it probably took a little bit of time to figure out the, the transition plan itself. Um, and, and you know, I think we're all excited about the fact that um, this is a promotional opportunity. So literally everyone who is a current library clerk who applies to become a library assistant will be a library assistant. Um, it, but I could have to get back to you on some more, what some of those sticking points where I was not directly involved in the in the conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Bermondorts. 
Sure, just a question, um, just wanting to confirm, read through the materials and appreciate the, the briefing that um, this is all aligned with the implementation plan that Local 88's agreed to? Very much so. Great, thanks. All right, thank you. Commissioner Stegman. Thank you, Chair. Just want to thank uh, Local 88 and thank Katie for your work and really happy that we were able to reach this agreement. Yeah, thank you, Katie. I'll echo that and the whole library team that was a part of that as well as Local 88. I think this was um, a pretty big move, right? And um, and so it took a lot to get there, but I think we're in a, a really good place and this sets us up, I think, for um, you know really good work and appropriate roles for the library as this work moves forward. So appreciate it. All right, um, thanks. Um, Marina, can we have a roll call vote? Uh, Commissioner Myron? Aye. Commissioner Beeson? Aye. Commissioner Brim Edwards? Commissioner Stegman? Aye. Chair Vega-Peterson? Aye, the budget modification is approved. R6, first reading of ordinance amending Multnomah County zoning map and zoning code to incorporate amendments to the city of Portland zoning map and planning and zoning code implement, implementing the city's floodplain resilience plan. That so. is a lot of zoning. <laughs> uh, second. Okay, uh, Commissioner Myron moves, Commissioner Brim Edwards seconds approval of R6. Hey, good morning, Madam Chair. Good morning, Commissioners. My name is Adam Barber. I am the Deputy Land Use Planning Director, and I'm sorry, my voice is a little strained uh, today. Feeling fine, though, but it's been strained for quite some time. Um, I am joined virtually with Jeff Caudill and Jessica Mooring, both with uh, the Portland Bureau of Planning and Sustainability. And continuing on maybe a trend that I'm sensing today, we do have a presenter who's not feeling well, which is why the rest of the team is not here in person. So appreciate the flexibility in allowing us to come um, partially in person, partially virtual as a presentation team. Uh, we're here to request that the board adopt a county ordinance that amends the county's zoning map and zoning code to incorporate recent changes that the City of Portland City Council has adopted implementing the city's floodplain resilience project. And so in some earlier testimony today, it's another theme I'm picking up on. You know, I heard questions contemplating, you know, what are we as a community doing to recognize that the climate's changing and the type of storms that we are seeing are changing? And I think this is an excellent example of how we're coordinating with the city of Portland to think about our most vulnerable communities and, and recognize those realities. So in, in very high level summary, the amendments, the ordinance in front of you today are intended to make changes that will reduce the impacts of future flooding uh, within the areas of the city of Portland's jurisdiction that are subject to flooding, but also to better protect and to continue to protect habitat for endangered and threatened species that rely on those kind of riparian areas near water bodies. And then also advance city and county uh, goals around climate resiliency, hazard mitigation, and all of these high level policies that are articulated in the joint city of Portland and Multnomah County Climate Action Plan from 2015. Um, these proposed changes would be made available uh, within the, the, the city limits, but also within the roughly, uh, well, the portion of the unincorporated Multnomah County urban area just outside of city limits, but within the city's urban services boundary. And that's the context why we're here with the county board, uh, because these regulations would apply to a portion of unincorporated Multnomah County that is planned and zoned by the city of Portland pursuant to a planning services IGA. A term in that IGA requires that the city uh, of Portland, uh, when they make changes to zoning maps or zoning codes, that the county adopt 
so that those changes can also be applied within these urban county pockets. So that's the, that's the, the legal basis for why we're here today. Um, at this point, I'll turn it over to Jeff and Jessica to walk us through the highlights of the project. Hi there, can you hear me? Just wanna make sure you can hear me okay? We can hear you, Jeff, thanks. Okay, great. Uh, so yeah, uh, commissioners and chair, yeah, my name is Jeff Cottle. I'm an environmental planner at the Bureau of Planning and Sustainability, and we have been working on, and I'm joined uh, by my colleague, Jessica, who, who helps, who's helped with this project. Um, we are here, it's, we worked on this project, what's called the Floodplain Resilience Plan for about two years. Um, as Adam said, it was uh, adopted in October by the by the uh, city council, and really, uh, it has the the multiple goals that uh, Adam highlighted. Really, about reducing flood risk, but also responding to a what is called a biological opinion that identified um, impacts of the national the FEMA National Flood Insurance Program, uh, the impacts of that program on threatened and endangered species. So the city has been going through a number, a sort of a stepwise process to update their flood uh, development regulations to be consistent with the directives of that biological opinion, uh, which is actually uh, developed by the National Marine Fisheries Service. And so this is the second phase of the implementation of our citywide floodplain management update. Uh, back in early 2021, uh, the board adopted changes as a part of the River Plan Southreach. Um, and one, it was a much larger, kind of more comprehensive plan, but that included uh, similar floodplain updates for that area. So basically the area uh, from the Ross Island Bridge all the way down to the urban services boundary, which includes uh, in, in, along the Willamette, the area that we're talking about is in the Riverdale Dunthorpe area. Um, so as a part of the floodplain resilience plan and to try to better characterize the risk of flooding, the city worked with the Army, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to develop a new model of a 1996-like flood. So the 1996 flood is February of 1996 is our most recent significant flooding event and is currently regulated by uh, our metro government, the regional government in, in the region. Um, so we, through this model, ha are looking, we have replaced that um, metro, which is called the 1996 flood inundation area with this new model. The, we believe the new model estimates flooding along the Willamette. It covers um, from the Willamette Falls all the way down to the confluence with the Columbia River. And it basically takes into account current development patterns, topography, and other characteristics along the Willamette River. Um, so for the unincorporated Multnomah County area, there's two main areas of said it's the uh, River Riverdale Dunthorpe area in the South Reach, and then there's a small portion of unincorporated area out near the within the Johnson Creek floodplain. So the two things that we have, the changes we made related to the uh, Willamette River South Reach or the Riverdale Dunthorpe area is really updating the boundaries of our environmental regulations. So the, what we call the river overlay, the river environmental overlay and its requirements to to incorporate that new model 1996 so that that's where these uh, requirements apply. They also still apply to the FEMA 100 year floodplain. And then since the adoption of that river plan Southreach, it became clear we had made a policy decision as a part of that plan to uh, apply regulation to the entire floodplain, including developed floodplain. And based on further discussions with our Bureau of Development Services, we decided that wasn't actually very effective in terms of getting improvements in those areas. So we have removed those environmental regulations from the developed floodplain. 
environmental regulations will still apply to undeveloped floodplains and other key areas within um, the, the floodplain uh, along the Willamette. For the Johnson Creek portion, it's really a small area out there, very rather far um, on, in the East County, but there are a handful of, 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 of properties that where we currently, we did not expand any environmental zoning out that in that area, but what we did is we changed the environmental overlay zone, which applies to the, basically it's our environmental regulations for everywhere except along the Willamette. Well, not everywhere, but most everywhere uh, except uh, the Willamette. And so in that case, really the only changes that we made, and that's again in response to the biological opinion, was about how trees and vegetation are managed and then a uh, uh, in the, the replacement ratio. So if you have, if you remove a tree, how, how many do you have to plant and things like that? So really, again, this is about creating a floodplain habitat for these threatened and endangered species. Um, and again, they only the changes only apply to areas that are already in either our environmental conservation or our environmental protection overlay zone. And then finally, just to wrap up a little bit about our public engagement, we reached out early on in the project and let everyone know, anyone who was in the floodplain that we were working on this project, everyone was of course notified prior to our um, our, our planning and sustainability commission hearing, uh, and uh, we continue to let people know and, and distribute information throughout the process, both uh, at the planning and sustainability commission and city council, and welcomed in, in, you know input, both uh, formally and informally uh, throughout the process. So, with that, I'm happy to answer any questions you may have. Thank you so much, um, Jeff. We will um, see. Um, I believe we do have some public comment on this, so we're going to uh, make space for that, and then we'll um, go to the board for questions. We have um, lightning. Yes, my name is Lightning. I represent Lightning Super Humanity X. I agree with everything the speakers have stated. Also on the uh, FEMA aspect, I also want to make sure that the uh, Multnomah County Animal Service is working close with them on this issue. I want to make sure we have a clear plan on protecting the animals during a flood, our response, where we take them. And I want to make sure that that is well funded. That's very important to me to make sure we have a very strong FEMA plan in place for the animals, dogs, cats, horses, cows, to make sure that the response time is fast, effective, and they are not left out to uh, defend for themselves. Uh, pertaining back to the 1996 flood, again, referring back to my marina, Columbia River Marina, what happened during that flood, so you understand, is that the flood went all the way up to the parking lots, which is considered the crown of the levee. And basically the power of this river, all the log pilings coming up that held the marina in place snapped in half and everything floated out of these marinas. What the insurance companies, and I wanted maybe these people to have a little more input, is they came back and said, no, you're going to have steel pilings if you're going to operate your marina. So we upgraded all steel pilings for the insurance companies, which I did agree with. And the reality is, is that we need to have a clear understanding 
on the response times on these floods. And again, like I stated on Marine Drive when working with the National Guard, when I'm talking about a concrete barrier, I'm talking similar to what you see on the highways where they have the concrete sections come up, they can place them in fast and remove them out fast. You get about another three feet. That can buy you time. We might even be able to extend up to six feet with concrete barriers, have them positioned over by the National Guard, have the proper equipment. They can move them in fast and shut everything down to save these areas, especially when I'm talking the airport and the waterfront properties. Remember, Vera Katz was out there with the sandbags and the plywood. Well, guess what? This climate right now is a lot different. We're gonna to have to come out with concrete sections to set up fast and to prevent mass flooding and mass damages in certain areas. So again, all the work that the presenters have uh, stated today, I'm at 100% agreement with what they're doing and uh, just keep up the good work and again, focus on the animals from the FEMA position. I really wanna make sure that there's fast response, people are funded well, we have a game plan, and we protect those animals during an extreme flood. Thank you. Thank you. All right, uh, we'll go to the board for any questions or comments, and we'll start with Commissioner Beeson. None, thank you. Uh, Commissioner Brim Edwards. No, I appreciate uh, the thorough explanation. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Adam, and everyone for presenting. I do have a few questions. So I'm just trying to understand, this is basically uh, some edits to the existing map. Is that right? My, my understanding is, and, and Jeff, please correct me, map and rule amendments as well related to development near areas prone to flooding. Is that a is that a, a accurate assessment, Jeff? Yeah, so the the map component is the kind of a, adjustment modification of where we apply the environmental zoning and then the more kind of development regulation, whether they apply in terms of code requirements is where we have removed the, that river environmental from the code. There are no substantive changes in terms of everything that still is in existence really from the river plan Southreach continues to be applied. It's just sort of more where it is applied in the south reach and then along the johnson creek area it's just some minor changes to regulations yes so that's more of a code update that would require additional planting of trees that kind of establishes a minimum baseline of how many of how to manage tree, trees and vegetation and how much replacement we would expect with development thank you jeff so uh so i'm trying to understand this so this would occur when there's development is what you're saying these are like the mechanisms or the rules or regulations about the trees if somebody was to develop in these zones yeah or also if you are even if it's just on your property in the backyard and you need to you're removing a tree you would still also need to meet these tree replacement requirements for example yeah great and it doesn't impact uh because I know the maps uh, have an impact on you know, the flood insurance rates that people pay. Does no impact there? There's, there's no impact. Actually, this is just getting us to be uh, better prepared because we need to meet these requirements to continue to, be, to, have, uh, to maintain our access to the National Flood Insurance Program. And so this stepwise process is what we're using to make sure that we get to compliance um, and continue to have access to both 
the flood insurance program, but also it also is connected to disaster relief funds. So both of those, this this work is really making sure that we continue to have access to both of those. Great. No, I really appreciate that. In my other life, uh, I'm actually an insurance agent, so I'm pretty familiar uh, with flood insurance, and it's kind of a, a timely topic. Next month, this board will be receiving a briefing on the work that the Urban Flood and Safety Water Quality District Board has been doing, and if you all think about the Vanport flood. And the devast and you can look across the country the amount of flooding that have devastated cities and you know let me just say that our levy system is at risk of failing and we have to do something so this is this is a little bit different but it certainly helps support uh, that uh, direction so anyway I'm really uh, you know and it's flood insurance is so expensive and it's subsidized and so for us to maintain uh, you know being in lockstep with those requirements uh, to ha so that people have access to to subsidize flood insurance is absolutely critical so appreciate you all being here and uh, making sure that uh, our area are protected and people are planting more trees to prevent you know f more flooding so thank you thank you uh, Commissioner Myron yeah, thank you Adam and and all of you uh, this impacts my district um, and I appreciate all the work that you've done thanks Wonderful. Well, I just also want to um, add my thanks to all the work that's gone on to this. I know, like, updating these things are, are take months and months, if not years, of, of work to really um, make sure that um, all of the, you know, measurements, all of the um, information is correct, and then these have big impacts on, um, you know, the way that we do our work forward, building things, all of that. So this is a really important step. So appreciate the time that you have given today to explain it so thoroughly to us, and, um, and glad to have this um, to take action on today. Um, so, Marina, can we have a roll call vote, please? Commissioner Myron? Aye. Commissioner Beeson? Aye. Commissioner Brem Edwards? Aye. Commissioner Stegman? Aye. Chair Vega Peterson? Aye. The first reading is approved, and the second reading is scheduled for January 4th, 2024. Thank you. R7, R7 ratification of tentative agreement between Multnomah County and AFSCME Local 88 uh, 5 dentists for a collective bargaining agreement CBA from 2023 to 2026. Second. Commissioner Myron moves. Commissioner Stegman seconds. Approval of R7. I feel like there should be balloons and streamers in the room today for this, but just I'm so glad to have you here to talk about this agenda item. Uh, thank you. Good morning, Madam Chair and Commissioners. Um, for the record, my name is Sessa Diaz and I am the Deputy Chief Human Resources Officer um, for the county. Uh, joining me at the table today is Elizabeth Colextro, um, our Labor Relations Manager, who actually served as first chair for our dentist unit. Um, we're here today um, requesting ratification of a new collective bargaining agreement reached with the dentist. And I'm actually going to let Ellie um, jump in and, and uh, review the highlights of, of the new uh, agreement. Thank you. Good morning, Chair and Commissioners. As Sessa just mentioned, my name is Elizabeth Calixtro, and I'm a Labor Relations Manager for Fort Multnomah County. Uh, I served as first chair for this round of negotiations. Bargaining began in April of this year, and overall we had a total of 19 bargaining sessions and an additional four session, uh, mediation sessions. We reached a TA on November 16 of 2023. I would like to take a moment to thank members of both the union and management bargaining teams for their dedication and hard work during this bargaining session. I'm hoping I've managed to include everyone, but apologize in advance if I've forgotten any names. From Labor Relations, Cesar Diaz, who served as second chair. 
from Department HR, Erin Murphy. And department managers at the table included Bernadette Thomas and Asma Ahmed. Additionally, we had subject matter expert support from Ashley Manning at Central Budget and from Daniel Martinez, Machek Dolara, and Jenna Green at ICS, among others. The local 88 bargaining team included Evan Pullman, Jocelyn Baker, Lillian Harewood, Melissa Brady, Sergey Korpichenko, and Ida Hazim. I'm not going to spend a lot of time reviewing every change of this successor contract, but I did want to call attention to some particular highlights of this three-year agreement. The main pieces the main economic pieces of this new CBA include a cost of living increase of, or COLA of 5% effective 7-1-2023 and a one-time retention incentive of $4,500 for all eligible employees active in the dentist bargaining unit at the time of contract ratification. Members of, bargaining unit, of the bargaining unit will receive an additional COLA adjustment between 1 and 4% in July of 2024 and 2025. In addition to the cost of living adjustments, the parties also reached agreement to shift to a two-chair patient scheduling model every day, which will increase patient access to dental services while advancing industry standards. In recognition of this shift, dentists in the bargaining unit will receive a one-time incentive of $5,500 in year one of the contract, and an additional step will be added to the top of the range in year two. Other measures to increase patient access in this new CBA include the ability to issue same-day reassignments, the ability to designate on-site essential employees during county curtailments or closures, the ability to assign employees to telework during county curtailments or closures, and the requirement of all dentists to hold nitrous oxide permits. The bargaining teams also worked collaboratively to address other work-life balance impacts, which included an agreement to increase sick leave accruals by one day per year in alignment with other units, the addition of two floating holidays, and the ability to adjust FTE outside of the bid process once through the end of calendar year 2024. Overall, both teams worked together to resolve a variety of issues and came to an agreement that supports both the county's operational needs and members of the AFSCME Dental Bargaining Unit. Again, thank you for your time today. Uh, I would like to note that AFSCME sends their regrets for not being able to be here today as there were other bargaining conflicts. Thank you again, and I am happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Elizabeth, appreciate that. And um, we'll go to the board for any questions and comments, or let me check, was there any public comment? No, okay. Uh, Commissioner Brim Edwards. I don't have any questions, um, as, but I appreciated the briefing I had, um, and I just want to extend my congratulations to the county team, um, and um, thanks, and also to um, our partners at AFSCME. Um, this agreement, just looking at the outline, um, I'm glad it continues our critical dental uh, services to county patients and at the same time, I think addresses the compensation and workload issues um, that were raised. Um, so really uh, great work and I'm pleased that there was an agreement reached. Thank you, Commissioner Stegman. Thank you, Chair. I uh, just want to appreciate the work. Thank you, uh, Sessa and Elizabeth, and uh, same to our uh, partners in our union and our dentists. Uh, I know that you, you do a lot of behind the scenes negotiations and we just get to see the end result. Uh, and so the end result is uh, remarkable. I know that uh, it can be challenging at times and the fact that you were able to reach this agreement uh, really just speaks to uh, your skills uh, and the commitment from our unions to serve our community. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Myron. I too. Um, 
<laughs> I, um, I too uh, want to just offer my congratulations and appreciation to the county team um, and all the time that you've taken to negotiate. Um, also partners at AFSME and um, the, the um, efforts they have made to really elevate the issues being faced by their members um, and uh, explain what it is like um, and what the issues are from the perspective of being on the front line there and doing the work. And, um, and then particularly, I'm just really um, grateful on behalf of uh, the dentists, the individual people who are there um, every day doing this work on the front line, and um, the and the benefit this will have for them and the patients that they serve. So, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Beeson. I also want to extend my congratulations to the county team. My thanks to AFSME and and the dentists who are looking after uh, some of uh, the most vulnerable folks in our community. So, thank you. Congratulations. Yeah, and I will just add my congratulations. I know there was a, a ton of hard work, a lot of hours that went into this, and I think um, where we ended up was a is a really you know that's the point of all of these um, all of these conversations and the time that goes into it to get to something that um, that meets the needs of both um, the really important employees who are doing this work and um, what we need in order to to operate. Um, the, as, a, as a whole system. So um, just really appreciate all of you, appreciate the folks from Ask Me who were involved in this, and I'm so glad that we have this chance to, to move forward with this three-year contract. Um, all right, so with that, can we have a roll call vote? Commissioner Myron? Aye. Commissioner Beeson? Aye. Commissioner Brim Edwards? Aye. Commissioner Stegman? Aye. Chair Vega-Peterson? Aye, the tentative agreement is approved. Thank you. R8, approval of Multnomah County 2024 State Legislative Agenda. So moved. Second. Uh, Commissioner Stegman moves, Commissioner Myron seconds. Approval of R8, welcome government relations. I think I have some beginning remarks, so I will um, share them. Um, so, you know, this is uh, a really important opportunity as we look ahead to the um, the upcoming legislative session to really focus on the needs of Multnomah County and how we as critical partners in some of the work that we have to do are going to be working with the state. Um, so I'm glad that we have a chance today to consider the legislative priorities going into our 2024 short legislative session. Um, you know, we have had several discussions over the last months about the impacts of state funding or the lack thereof on our ability to do county programs. Um, we also know from our more recent um, general fund um, update that we're going into some several years of, um, of um, um, the total word is, but you know, where we have um, continued deficit because our revenues are not keeping up with our expenses. So lobbying for and winning opportunities to support the essential services and programs that we provide here at the county is gonna be key to our success and having that partnership at the state is going to be really important. Um, I think that the um, priorities that you're gonna be talking about today really focus on our most essential services and the things that we know are gonna have a critical impact for some of our biggest challenges in the community. And so as we're talking about our behavioral health systems, as we're talking about expansions to housing and shelter capacity, um, opportunities to promote community safety and protections for our environments, um, as well as um, developing our community, and the infrastructure and transportation needs we have, these are all such key uh, critical 
uh, county services. So I just want to thank Justin, you and your team for all of the work that you've gone into in um, putting this together. I know you do a lot of outreach, a lot of conversations to come up with this, and I've appreciated the partnership as we're getting there. Um, so with that, I'm um, ready to turn it over to you to hear um, more about this in detail. Thank you. Great. Uh, thank you, Chair. Commissioners, uh, for the record, uh, my name is Justin Black. Uh, I use he him pronouns. I'm the Director of Government Relations here at Multnomah County, and with me is... Uh, Stacy Callen. I use she and her pronouns, Senior State Policy Manager here at Multnomah County in Government Relations. Great. And Marina, if you want to go to the next slide. Um, so um, as the chair talked about, we're going to talk about our role here at the county. Um, we're going to go over some key uh, dates at the legislature. We're going to do a quick overview of what the 2024 legislative session looks like, potential, including potential issues. And then we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about um, the proposed uh, 2024 legislative agenda. Next slide. So I think a lot of you are familiar with our role here in government relations, but maybe just a few reminders about how we work both in the interim and during session. Uh, we kick off our legislative season well before December, before we're here with you today, by developing an agenda in partnership with all of you, starting really in the summer, um, and of course with our departments. A major role of ours during session is to coordinate communications with legislators so that the information the county provides is consistent across offices as well as our departments. Um, this really helps make our message more impactful as we're working with our partners at the state level. Um, we are the main point of contact for all legislative matters and inquiries. And then of course, during session, we're in Salem every day, monitoring hearings, meeting with legislators and other partners. Uh, next slide, please. Some of the important dates uh, looking ahead um, for the upcoming session, we're gonna host our annual legislative breakfast on Wednesday, January 3rd at 7 a.m. Uh, we'll also meet twice with legislative coordinators in January to prepare for session, and then we'll resume our weekly meetings with our legislative coordinators while sessions um, uh, meeting, while session is in session. The session officially begins uh, February 5th, I believe that's a Tuesday. Um, and uh, was constitutionally required to wrap by March 10th. Next slide, please. So a little bit of an overview. Um, coming into last session, we were really facing an incredible amount of turnover um, with a lot of new legislators. Uh, leadership in both chambers is largely the same, with one exception, uh, that's in the House Republican uh, Leadership Office. Uh, Representative Jeff Helfrich from House District 52, that spans all the way from Gresham all the way out to the Dalles. He was selected by his caucus to serve as the minority leader. Uh, this is a short session, so we just have 35 days for the legislature to complete their business. Um, that also means that uh, the number of bills available to legislators is reduced. So legislators have two bills, there's three bills for committee. And then on the budget um, outlook going into uh, this short session, we're facing a really relatively positive outlook for the current biennium. But um, as the chair mentioned, I think folks are looking ahead. And so we'll see, I think, some caution in some of the budget decisions made. Uh, next slide, please. Um, uh, this list probably doesn't surprise you, but these are some of the potential issues that we expect to be considered during the short session. That includes ballot measure 110, community corrections funding, housing, homelessness, and addiction. Uh, next slide, please. Okay, uh, we're gonna go ahead and turn our attention to the sort of bulk of our agenda. And I'm gonna start first with um, uh, the top item, addiction and community safety. 
Um, so the legislature created a joint committee on addiction and community safety earlier this fall to really be responsive to a lot of the conversation around ballot measure 110. We've identified pro, uh, four priorities in this issue area. The first is support for a ban on the public consumption of illicit drugs. This is to discourage the public use of drugs. And a statewide ban is incredibly important to make sure that we have consistency across jurisdictions. Um, the second item, state resources for treatment linked to the possession of controlled substances. We know outcomes have been impacted due to the lack of treatment options. And this is important as the legislature weighs expanding treatment courts. Uh, the third item, support for reducing barriers to prosecute drug delivery. This is needed to address a Court of Appeals decision from 2021 overturning years of past precedent, and this would really assist law enforcement in holding drug dealers accountable. And the last item that we've listed here is really continuing to improve coordination between the local mental health authorities, CCOs, and burns. The next major focus area is the investment in the behavioral health system, and this is both in the um, you know, work that we do here at the county and then also the work that's done at the state level. Um, the first in that, that list is the, um, the reimbursement rates for aid and assist. So as we know that folks who cannot aid and assist in their own defense um, are either sent to the state hospital for restoration or uh, put in a community for local restoration. Um, due to the recent Mossman decision and just an elevated increase in acuity in our community, um, our behavioral health department has seen almost a tripling in caseload for aid and assist um, and they're not there has not been state funding to match that increase in caseload there also has um, been a, a big need to look back at how how much services cost um, when you're providing them to folks who are in um, restoration services for aid and assist um, in addition um, we have seen a, um, a a real big problem for workforce in behavioral health um, so looking towards um, expanding the workforce, either through expanded credentialing, uh, credentialing of folks who historically have been not able to get credentialed because of prior um, uh, drug use or, or interaction with the justice system, as well as investments in higher ed so that they can expand their programs and produce more folks um, for the workforce. Uh, higher ed is very interested in this. Um, as far as state work, um, looking at increasing uh, state residential capacity. So the state both funds and uh, regulates residential services. So that's secure residential, SUD residential, and other residential services. So really um, pushing the state to expand those services through investment funds so that um, nonprofits who, who actually do the day-to-day -day work um, can build out capacity, but also making sure that there is adequate funding for their daily rate so that they can stay open. Um, in addition, the, the expansion of super siting for residential and secure facilities. Uh, this has been a much needed addition in the uh, shelter space where if a facility meets certain fire life safety and other standards, they can skip over some of the permitting process and land use laws so that we can um, get them in place quicker. Um, and then Finally, I'll just leave with, you know, really pushing the legislature to fund an increased capacity for treatment, um, SUD housing, and other resources in our community um, so that we can meet the need that we see here locally. And then finally, some additional items in the community safety and justice space um, include continued support uh, around the shortage of public defenders. 
um, wrapping up some work done in the last session around equitable funding for educating students in detention facilities and centers. And then of course, last but not least, uh, full funding for community corrections for the current biennium. We're working in partnership and collaboratively um, with others around a statewide ask of $16 million to help counties get through to the next budget cycle uh, without having to make drastic cuts to our parole and probation staff and programming. Uh, next slide, please. In the area of housing and shelter, we have identified four priorities. The first is increasing investments in supportive and transitional housing services. The second is investing in shelter supports to avoid closures due to one-time funding. This really is a statewide issue impacting many uh, counties across Oregon. Um, houselessness prevention, homelessness prevention really includes uh, weatherization, which we had a good conversation about before, energy assistance, rent assistance, and other eviction prevention tools to ensure that we don't lose ground to help stabilize individuals and families. And then the last item is support for uh, increased housing production, especially in the area of investments in infrastructure such as water, sewer, stormwater, and transportation. In, in the space of protecting services for our most vulnerable, again, we have four priorities. The first is funding for the County Assessment Function Funding Assistance Program, otherwise known as CAFA. Um, this is an annual grant program to assist counties with additional money for assessment and taxation. Supports to, uh, I'm sorry, supporting efforts to modernize our state medical examiner program. We're especially interested uh, in efforts to improve timeliness of information and data. And funding for a statewide system of services to support immigrants, refugees, asylum seekers, and newcomers to Oregon. And then lastly, as part of the ODHS rebalance, we're supportive of funding for case management services for older adults and people with disabilities. Next slide, please. Uh, and then in the um, uh, economic and community development uh, bucket, I guess you would call it, um, you know, um, we continue to look for a landlord registry um, similar to the one that is in the city of Portland, but to expand that to a statewide registry uh, to help landlords with training and understanding all the, the laws that impact tenants now and just have a better idea of, of what is out there in the the rental market. Um, in addition, improving broadband access um, through infrastructure build out. And this is really making sure that the, the conversation around broadband isn't just about um, running lines out to the rural parts of the state, but also understanding that there are many folks in urban areas who don't have access to broadband, um, either through the price of broadband or the accessibility in their neighborhood. In the area of protecting our environment, we've identified two priorities for the short session. Uh, the first includes funds to stand up the Urban Flood and Safety Water Quality District. Again, we heard about this this morning. This is incredibly essential work to ensure that we're funding our levy system. And the second priority is a bill that would fund a study and recommendations through DEQ on the statewide impact of toxic inhalants in the event of a catastrophic earthquake. And then finally, transportation. Um, we don't expect huge legislation around transportation this session, but we do expect to start the ramp up for a large transportation project or large transportation um, package for the 2025 session. So really making sure that we are at the table, that we are talking about um, you know, um, recovery of costs to counties for, through diversion efforts, um, through tolling, um, equitable trans uh, transfer of revenue to counties, making sure that we 
have enough funding to do the road programs that we already have, um, but also impacts from state projects. Um, and then as ever, you know, just supporting an increase in transportation funding, especially as it comes to uh, rebuilding uh, the Burnside Bridge. So if I go to the next slide, um, I know we went through a ton of stuff very, very quickly. I do wanna go back to one of the earlier uh, things is so we work you know, regularly with um, uh, representatives from each of your offices and the departments as we go through session. So we meet weekly with them, talk about um, the bills that are at hand. Um, we use this document, um, the, the legislative agenda as kind of our guiding principles as we meet with legislators and start talking about issues. We also use this as, um, a, a playbook for as we work with agencies as well. Um, the county as a safety net provider and payer are very dependent on decisions that agencies make around funding and policy and we use this document as well to help guide our conversations with them as they make their those decisions. So um, I will say just a big thank you to all of you, your offices and all the other legislative coordinators out there um, who help us work through all of these policy decisions and, and review all the bills and do all this work. Um, and with that, uh, we will wrap up. Thank you both for the presentation. I also want to acknowledge some of the other folks on the government relations team who are in the um, room today, Sherry Campbell and Anne-Marie Allen. So, so thanks um, for this mighty team. And I know that this team will be expanding soon. So. Um, but I'm um, really glad to have everyone here today. We'll go to the board. Um, oh, actually, I do think we have public testimony, so we'll, we'll make time for that, and then we'll have you come back up. Lightning. Yes, my name is Lightning. I represent Lightning Superhumanity X. This all relates. The governor just had her conference with all the business owners, and I thought she was lacking on a lot of elements, and this pertains to this. Now, when we're talking the recovery housing, I want to see my, what I'm gonna call the Lightning Crown Plaza recovering housing project come forward. So I'm asking the state to do whatever they can, Governor Kotek, to put this together. Now I've talked with obviously Commissioner Myron and I've talked with President Peterson at Metro and my position on that is that this will be a showcase of what supportive housing services measure and what the state can do for the people that are addicted to fentanyl. They're having tough times out on the street. These are our community members. I have a lot of concern when I see someone stumped over and laying on a sidewalk and everybody walking by like, well, this is gonna be the common way we do things in this city. No, it's not. We're not gonna walk by. We're gonna get them into recovery housing. We're gonna have professionals that can watch and help them and assist them with their addictions. We're gonna get them off the streets first, in my opinion, which should be done, into recovery housing. So again, Governor Kotek and the state, I'm asking that we focus on this Lightning Crown Plaza recovering housing project 
because it'll do the most in the immediate crisis that we're in, which you've declared a state fentanyl crisis emergency, which I agree 100%, but we have to follow through. We have to follow through with that recovery and housing aspect, and we need to take care of the people that are addicted to this fentanyl, which I'm a health nut and I don't quite understand the things that it's doing to our community members out on the streets. And these are good people that need recovery housing. They can't recover on these sidewalks, these cold sidewalks when they pass out face down and nobody stops to do anything anymore. We need them in the recovery housing with the professionals saving their lives and working with them on their addiction to better their lives. Not to die on our sidewalks in record numbers, which the governor knows is happening right now, but to save them and assist them and get them into recovery housing should be the number one priority of this state and Governor Kotek. Thank you for your time, Governor. Thank you. All right, so we'll now go to the board for questions and I believe um, it is Commissioner Stegman's turn. Thank you, Chair. Uh, well, I don't know how you guys are gonna get through all this in 35 days, <laughs> but good luck to you. I appreciate uh, your ambition. Uh, and so I'll just kind of, uh, I, I did have one question around the ban on public consumption of illicit drugs. Can you expand, is there a potential bill? Do we, can you just kind of go into more detail? Uh, yeah, thank you for the question, Commissioner. So um, I think the, I'll just start by saying I think that that language absolutely matters. I think obviously coming into this with the value of not wanting to criminalize addiction but needing to address the public use of drugs, which, you know, is up for debate whether that was ever the intention of, of, of folks who voted in support of Ballot Measure 110. Um, uh, I haven't seen the most recent language, but we'll be paying really close attention to ensure that um, you know, it strikes the right balance. Um, but, but it is obviously, as you could imagine, um, uh, people are pouring over the details and trying to get the words exactly right. And then there's a lot of conversation about what happens to someone who's cited. And I think that's an important piece where we can weigh in and talk about the importance of having options for individuals and a lot of different off-ramps that don't necessarily just include uh, putting someone in jail. And so, and just to add on that, so the the legislature has created the Addiction and Community Safety Subcommittee that is meeting now. Um, they intend to continue those meetings post short session. But during short session, we do expect at least one bill out of that committee addressing um, you know, public use and a number of other things around ballot measure 110. I think that committee is still deciding whether they're gonna do one omnibus bill or whether they're gonna do kind of a smattering of bills. Great, thank you so much for that. Um, I'll just highlight you know, a few of my favorite things, obviously the behavioral health system and expanding it. You know, when I talk to a lot of our providers, uh, the common thread is, as we all know, is lack of workforce. And I, and I think I mentioned when we did our briefing, I don't know if Senator John is gonna be bringing forth uh, his bill about uh, lowering <laughs> or making it easier for immigrants to come to our country, especially like uh, with medical degrees, nursing degrees, to make it easier for those individuals uh, 
to get their licensing here. Uh, that you know, there's a lot of immigrants that are highly educated that cannot, um, you know, those skills are not transferable. So that is clearly something I think would would help support our behavioral health system. Uh, really excited about you know just to uh, expand our residential treatment, and then of course the public uh, defender shortage addressing that is critical. Community corrections, yes, we need funding for that. Uh, and I appreciate uh, Governor Kotek's uh, determination to expand our housing uh, production, so that will be really key. And then the landlord registry. We've had uh, the landlord regist registry in the city of Gresham for years. Uh, I know Portland has it, so it makes uh, incredible sense to have it at the state level. Uh, and then finally, you know, Urban Flood and Safety Water Quality District, uh, you know, standing up the work of that board again. You know, like, I don't know who decided to put the Port of Portland in a floodplain, but wasn't the best planning. Uh, but we do have to live with that, and all of the, the residents and businesses that live in that community. Uh, and so we, you know, and, and for those of you, like, before I was on this committee, like, when you're driving down Marine Drive and you see these big berms, that's our that's our levy system. Uh, and so uh, it's not really apparent to people uh, how we are going to stop a flood. Uh, and there's all sorts of pump stations and it gets very technical, uh, but those that floodplain does have to be managed in order for us to protect uh, life and property and businesses. So thank you uh, and uh, good luck. I hope, I, hope you, I hope you get everything on your Christmas list. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so much. Uh, you know, you, Justin, Stacy, Sherry, Anna, you, and, and Marie. Um, uh, Anna, I'm just, I'm losing it today. Um, thank you for all of your work in advocating for the county's needs. Um, you are all literally just the top of what you do, and we, we could not have a better team advo advocating for us at the state. And um, that's just apparent every, every time I talk to you, every time I hear from legislators, every, you know, it, it just is. Um, so thank you, and I generally support the agenda. Um, I think it's, it hasn't changed much in years. Some of the, maybe some of the more specific things are a little different here and there, but it's, it's kind of been about behavioral health, housing, you know, some environmental stuff thrown in. Uh, but, um, you know, it sort of raises for me some questions around what, what we are doing locally to walk the walk as we're asking the state for these things. And, you know, thinking about, for example, where you mentioned addiction and community safety, um, and the ban um, on public consumption of illicit drugs. Uh, absolutely, this has been fairly clear to a lot of people for a long time. And it also seems like something that we could pursue locally in our role as the local public health authority, um, just as we could have done a public health emergency around, um, around uh, fentanyl, you know, for the past couple of years since the issue has been raised. So it feels like um, where there are opportunities to legislate locally about things, I'm hoping that we can pursue that. Um, you know, also you mentioned supporting prosecution of distribution of fentanyl, and meanwhile we let the distributor of 11 million doses of fentanyl just walk out of our jails. 
um, and that could have been prevented at the local level. And for protecting our environment, we can hopefully issue risk bonds. I'm hopeful this is something that we can do working together um, <clears throat> to hopefully mitigate the potential for or at least have enough money to cover the cost of catastrophic disruption of the CEI hub um, in event of a major earthquake, which is long overdue. So I think there's so much that is super important to have the state support for and that we can work as partners. And we have the opportunity to work as even better partners um, walking the walk and doing this stuff in our county right now. So um, I'm excited to, to, to get down to work and for the 35 days or whatever, but um, do more, do more even here in advance of that and after. That's it. Hey, thank you, Commissioner Beeson. Uh, no questions, a lot of appreciation. I, I appreciate us focusing on uh, when and how state policy is the better place to solve some of these uh, issues that we face, whether it's the landlord registry, I think that's the right level to be able to, to be setting that policy. I think on the asylum uh, work, that's also the right place uh, to be having this conversation. Um, and uh, I think even though I have mixed feelings about whether whether and how a public ban uh, rolls out, it's also best to have a statewide framework for that work to be happening. So uh, good luck with the, the big laundry list. Um, and uh, thank you for continuing to advocate for the needs of counties. Thank you. And Commissioner Brim Edwards. Good morning. Thank you for the very comprehensive agenda. I'm glad you are somewhat um, bullish on the economic outlook um, because we're gonna need that. Uh, I really appreciate uh, your, the team putting together um, a robust agenda and consulting with um, all of our offices um, and putting it together. And for the briefing earlier this month, um, I see in this agenda a reflection of what I know are the priorities of many in district in District 3, which are um, initiatives to address homelessness, public safety, and um, behavioral health issues. So I'm really appreciative um, to, to see those in there. Um, and I'm looking forward to supporting the key components of the agenda um, with an, helping advocate uh, with the governor and uh, legislators. Uh, to some specific issues, I think one of the keys to um, moving a really robust agenda will be um, alignment with um, other partners. So it's not just Multnomah County. Um, so aligning with uh, other, other counties, um, the city of Portland, um, and also the state. Um, with that, I, I know the governor's uh, task force recommendations were first announced on Monday at the business summit. Um, there were many things that I see so in alignment. Um, how do you see the alignment with what got, was rolled out for the task force with um, the county's agenda um, as we head into the short session? Yeah, it, you know, and I would just say, Commissioner, you know, one of the things we also try to do is is that engagement of external partners as we work through this process. So, you know, we engage with other counties, um, the sheriff, the DA's office, the city of Portland. Um, many other advocates in these spaces to just see where everybody is at and try to come to you know where the where the county is best positioned to be in a lot of these places so i think we, we try to find alignment with as many partners as we can i would say as far as the central city task force i think there's a lot of 
really close alignment. Um, I think especially coming out of the housing and homelessness um, subcommittee, there is a lot of alignment. Um, I think even in the public safety realm, you know, they were looking at the same thing, public consumption. Um, you know, it, I will say, I think they recommended a bunch of other things for the city and the county to do that are not spoken of in here, but I think the, the statewide staff is, is very closely aligned on a, on a lot of these uh, looks. And, you know, I just talked the other day with the um, city of Portland's government relations director to just, you know, talk through some of these things and, you know, they mirror a lot of the stuff that's on our agenda, on their agenda. Um, and so I think we're finding really close alignment um, between all of us and we have regular uh, a meeting with the, the governor's legislative director next week to talk through some of these as well. So I think we'll see a lot of close alignment on what we're asking for. Great, it was, you anticipated my next question, which was around alignment with the city of Portland. Um, again, when I see sort of big lifts always, um, it usually is because um, many stakeholders are um, communicating and advocating around similar issues. When I look at the issues related to substance use, mental health, public safety, and shelter, it seems like we have a lot of alignment with the city. So um, I'm glad to hear that's um, happening in a way and we show up united on most issues in Salem. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say there's a lot. And I, you know, it's, as we work through these agenda, you know, I, I think, um, you know, one of the things we try to think through is some of these, some of these are like, just Multnomah County, you know, like there's singular asks for the county, but then there are broader kind of community asks where there is a coalition. And so I think you'll see a mix of that through this agenda. Um, but I would say a lot of the big asks, just like you said, are kind of coalition asks where some of this work has already started, frankly, and kind of lining up to make sure that it's good to go. And that's, that's also why we do that early engagement with you all and our departments is to make sure that we're, we can do that early engagement and be headed in the right direction. If I could add to, I actually think that that's one of our keys to success is the engagement that we do with our partners early on and with you all, and especially going into a short session. Um, and it really, you know, we've learned over the years to be most successful. You need to have those in-depth conversations, understand where folks at, understand what their priorities are, and, and really be having those discussions well before session. So I, I think that that's a top priority of our office. Um, and then just into some specific issues um, on the public safety, um, Items uh, fully support the ban on public consumption on illicit drugs um, and also fully funding the community corrections for the rest of the biennium. So um, we have that addressed. We don't want to be in the, uh, it's not acceptable. And we had a long discussion earlier about the, uh, the backfill. Um, and it just seems considering our jail staffing shortages, that would be a like, top priority. Um, I also want to just, uh, I guess, elevate, and um, I know this was worked on last session, but just want to um, voice my continued support for the work on the funder, uh, public defenders um, funding. So critical in two places, for two ways. One, so that people have the constitutional right um, to defense, um, but also so that we're not um, dismissing cases um, because there aren't public defenders um, available and having sat in arraignment court and watched um, having that happen, seeing cases dismissed, there was some rather serious um, issues that um, because of lack of public defenders. So I know that um, a large allotment um, of funds um, occurred in the last legislative session, but I'm glad to see it's like we're continuing to push on it because um, we haven't fully addressed it. Um, so very supportive of the public safety agenda. In terms of uh, the behavior health, again, supportive of the elements um, and all the investments. 
Um, again, those are gonna be essential for us to be able to address the uh, crisis in our community. I'm curious about how the county's agenda um, addresses any of the historical policy issues we've encountered around um, siting um, and operations of sobering centers. Yeah, so I think that that super siting um, call out in there is will directly impact that. And that's, you know, I think we see that uh, in other communities as well as just um, a, a need to get to get over some of those siting hurdles, um, but also ensuring that as you overcome those siting um, hurdles, that you make sure that you are still acknowledging the fire life safety and other requirements that come with facilities so that communities can feel that even though we're jumping over some of those siting hurdles, that we're making sure that they're, they're the right fit for the community and that they're done in, a, in, a, in the right way. Great. Then, um, Relating to shelter, uh, supportive of stabilizing resources and avoiding any shelter closures due to the ending of the one-time investments, um, also supportive of the housing uh, production efforts. Um, have we assessed what we're gonna need from this, specifically what we'll need from the state in terms of dollars um, or that we're looking for on the shelter front? So I would say, I think that's a little bit in flux. Um, the state did do a survey of um, all counties on who was using ARPA money, uh, CARES Act money, and, and other one-time money for shelters. Um, you know, and I, so the state has done that assessment. I think they're still trying to figure out what a reasonable piece is there. I mean, there are some communities whose entire shelter system is funded with one-time ARPA funds. And really making sure that those communities don't just close down their entire shelter system. Um, and so I think there's gonna be a, a, a policy conversation of there's probably not enough money to replace all of the ARPA money that's out there for shelters. So is there a prioritization or what does that look like? And so you know, we will continue to engage um, our friends in the budget office and others on what the impact um, to our ARPA funding shortfall is um, along with that kind of broader statewide conversation on making sure that communities don't go without any shelter. Great, I'll be interested in sort of how that um, shakes out in terms of how we how we land the prioritization. Obviously, we wouldn't want to, um, we, we do have local dollars, but um, wouldn't want to close any shelters or have a diminishment of capacity because of um, one-time one money from the state um, disappearing. Then, and I think that's just the last issue, and again, I really appreciate this, and I'm looking forward to helping in any way I can. Um, I just want to call out my support for the statewide funding for support services for the immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers. And I know that's um, an initiative that uh, Representative Wawin um, is advocating for. So when they get the legislative concept, I um, hope we can have that shared with us and look at ways in which we can be helpful um, as it's a statewide issue and it'd be great to provide some assistance um, on that particular issue. I'm working closely with Rep Wynn and absolutely happy to share any opportunity to have you come to Salem. Great, thanks. Thanks. <clears throat> Great, well thank you um, so much. This is a very um, ambitious agenda, but we're really focusing, I think, on the most important things, and there's a lot of them. I am really pleased with a lot of the conversations that have happened with other partners and jurisdictions and how we can be advocating for some of these investments, um, as well as the conversations that have already been happening with legislators as we're kind of previewing this. I do wanna just put in a second plug for our legislative breakfast that we're gonna be having. It's a very early morning, a packed two hours of everybody talking about their 
um, priorities and hopes and dreams for the upcoming legislative session, but it's a really good chance for the county, um, not just the board, but also our department directors and, and folks from around the county um, to engage with our, uh, with our legislators in, um, in Multnomah County. So looking forward to that. Thank you all very much for this. Um, and um, can we have a roll call vote? Commissioner Myron? Commissioner Beeson? Aye. Commissioner Brim Edwards? Yes. Commissioner Stegman? Aye. Chair Vega Peterson? Aye. The state legislative agenda is approved. All right, so we are, that comes to the end of our uh, scheduled agenda, and now is the time when we have um, some moments for board comments today. So I'll go through the board um, by district to see who has any comments. I'll start with Commissioner Myron. Thank you. Um, I have a two uh, things. One, um, one is just a question slash comment around fentanyl, um, and it it goes to the um, the county's plan, an ongoing plan for what we're doing around fentanyl, because it, it did become clear just even starting with earlier than this, but very clear during the budget conversations of the board that that there was no real plan around fentanyl or addressing the opioid crisis or addiction in general. <laughs> but the um, interim health department director did come, did say he'd come back and brief this board on a plan around fentanyl in, I think it was June or July, and he came back and described more of a plan for a plan that he would come back and talk about this with us again when there was more information. And then it's been sort of radio silence. Then there was like a whisper of a rumor that there was a plan, but it had to be um, reviewed by others. And then again, it was silent. And it, it makes, a lot of folks might not be familiar with the old Wendy's commercials of the 80s, but just to paraphrase, like, where's the plan? And along those lines, I have been raising um, the need to declare a public health emergency around fentanyl for over a year. Uh, I don't even know how long. And as for it again in a meeting you know, directly with you, Chair, uh, just a couple of weeks ago and reiterated what I said before, that never before have I seen something so frequently described as a crisis treated with less urgency. And you you had told me then a public health emergency was not on the table for a variety of reasons. And then I was pleased but very surprised to hear on Monday, you know, literally days later, the fentanyl emergency announced by the governor with um, city and county support. And, you know, I am curious what changed in those days, but more importantly, I really want this to be yet more talk of a crisis without action, and so I imagine an emergency wouldn't be declared without a specific implementation plan, so I'm hoping I can see that plan. What we are doing as a county to treat the fentanyl crisis as the emergency that it is um, in conjunction with um, the state, but we can do it ourselves, Like we, and we sh I feel like we should have been what is that plan? So, um, so I appreciate the um, the conversation. I will say, for me, um, when we talk about the fentanyl crisis, there are a lot 
that Multnomah County can be and is doing in response to the crisis. Um, when um, when uh, Interim Director um, Bravo came and was talking about the plan um, that was in, in process, it really was being worked on together. Um, we have something that has been um, now reviewed by uh, our new director, Rachel Banks, and, is, and we're looking at how we can be implementing some of these things. I think the other piece, though, that's really important is that this was really a, a health department-focused plan, and um, so we're now engaging in work to see how can we make sure that the um, perspectives and the, and the needs and the, um, you know, really work of um, other departments like DCJ or the joint office are also inclusive of this, and then how we can also be making sure that we're um, convening and collaborating with partners about the overall work. In terms of an emergency declaration, you know, I think the, for me, this, the, the real strong guiding um, thing is that the crisis that we're seeing fentanyl is not something that can just be solved solely with a public health response. That is a huge piece of it, but it also has to include the coordination between with our city, state, and even federal partners as we're talking about the impacts of fentanyl, the way that fentanyl is coming into our community, um, all of these different things. So, so one of the things that was really important to me as we were having conversations about the recommendations coming out of the task force is that it was a coordinated effort between state county city as well as other partners and i think what we've been what i've been talking about with the mayor and the governor um, is is kind of reflective of that coordinated operation that we really need to address the crisis and that's we're going to be having further conversations i'll be having further conversations with them um, next week about the next steps around that um, and we'll be happy to keep the board informed as we move forward with that um there you know there's nothing for the board to contemplate at this time so um i think that the um you know, we're going to be talking about what it, this actually looks like, what the uh, what the setup will be, and what everybody's role will be. And I will definitely be sharing that information with you, with you all. So, I I appreciate that, um, and I really do. I I'm struggling with how to say this, um, but it, I'm really disturbed by actually what you just said. And there is nothing that you mentioned that in any way treats this as an emergency or suggests that anything has been done for the past year around this. In fact, that, you know, said there was, you know, a new health department director, we've looked at it, health and within the department. Now we actually need to expand and include other departments in the county. I mean, that should have been happening from literally day one, but, and convening with other public safety partners and state and federal that is exactly what could happen without a public health declaration, but as a county, that elevates the whole idea and really gives a, um, the potential for convening all these partners. Um, you oversee LIPSIC. LIPSIC should be addressing this as the local public safety coordinating council. You and I attended a meeting with the mayor back in, I mean, it was, it was before you took office, and I was really heartened the mayor had convened it, but it was public safety, it was behavioral health, it was state, local, federal, Governor Kotex, people were there. And I was like, oh my gosh, finally the people are together, something will be done. And now, I mean, I believe it's over a year later from that. It's, I, I don't even know what, I, I still don't know after what you said, anything that is actually being done to address this as an emergency. I think 
I just really want to elevate this and I don't know in what other venue or how to do it, but it really concerns me. Um, so hopefully there will be an opportunity to engage more over it, but we need to do something emergently. emergently. The emergency declaration sounds like far from an emergency to me, how it's being treated. But the other, the other thing along the lines of crisis response is um, I've been asking for an urgent change in our ambulance staffing model to address the crisis and emergency response. Again, for I think it was April when I formally raised it as and spoke with um, Dr. Jew and Aaron Monig and so many others. Since then, we've seen a, a worsening awful crisis in terms of level zeros, ambulance response times, and East County elected officials have voiced their desperation for us to do something and change our ambulance staffing model. Um, Gresham Fire has increasingly raised the alarm, and I did extensive medical research and analysis on the issue consulted with EMS directors in the state and provided that to you and the board and others in June. I feel like rather than action, there have been a number of deflections or excuses or saying it needs to be in the contract or the pilots that haven't, questionable rollout, haven't moved the dial, we aren't hearing anything about, I can't get information about despite asking. And so I am um, in the ambulance uh, services plan, there is a provision to formally make the request that um, to the EMS administrator that we change the ambulance services model. I am making that formal request, I've almost finalized it and I just wanted to announce it here because I will be sharing it with fellow commissioners and um, demanding the, the action that should have occurred months and months ago. So, Yeah, I appreciate that. I've actually um, asked for that from our attorneys and um, the ambulance service um, process, uh, and, and I've had conversations with Aaron and with um, others about that fact, um, because I, I really do think that's something that we need to move forward with it. It is not a fast um, process, so that in itself of looking at the question of whether a two paramedic model is still a, um, is still the viable model, that is in itself a, about a nine month process. So that the recommendation backed from, um, from our team was, you know, if we're gonna be looking at the two paramedic question itself, we might as well be looking at the entire ambulance service plan. So. Um, I'm happy to share that information with you because because um, that is something that I that I'd asked about to because I do think it's a question that needs to be answered. So I, I did ask about this around nine months ago. I mean, it, the idea that this is a, a I don't know why it would take nine months. There is nothing in the process, and I've gone through the ambulance services plan. It could be done urgently. It could be done now. It is on the basis of an emergency. The evidence is there. This is not something that needs to be nine months, and whoever's saying that is being inaccurate in what they are saying and misleading. Um, so I know you're reporting what someone else has said, but I would be curious what it is they envision as convening experts together to opine on in this emergency 
whether one, especially when we have the evidence out there, everyone has been coming forward for literally months and the, re and the research could have been done in that interim time. Like now, it, I feel like now we're gonna start the work to declare a fentanyl emergency. Now we're gonna start the work to address the ambulance mo service model. People are dying every single day on our streets and you're not treating it like an emergency. So, so I get passionate about this because I see it on the front line and I understand what's happening to individual people and the way this is talked about is if it's some school project that doesn't tie into actual lives. And I, I don't get it, I honestly don't. So we could do all of this stuff stat, as we say in the ER. And we are just literally seeming to take as long as humanly possible to make excuses and not allow action to happen. So I suggest you have a conversation with Aaron and some of our other folks about. Well, I'll, I'll make sure that they do respond to you. But be, but um, I will say that the um, there is a pretty involved and engaged process to do that part of the contract. And so I think that if you can have a conversation to understand what is involved and what that looks like, um, I think that that will be helpful. I will also say, and I, and I just want to say this very clearly, AMR, we are the only um, major city contract that they have that has a two paramedic model. That's not to say that there aren't two paramedic models in other large cities across the country th that they are, but I think that there is a, a you know, it's, as Dr. Lewis had mentioned in, in one meeting, it's probably not a coincidence that AMR doesn't have other clients that have um, two paramedic models because they really push hard against that. We have asked them for a list and they've provided a list of all the different things that they're doing to help with staffing here in Multnomah County. And I, I do not believe that they are doing enough to incentivize people to come to Multnomah County or um, incentivize people to stay and work in Multnomah County. In fact, during that time, they are expanding their work into other counties. Um, they haven't fully staffed up for um, EMTs for the pilot that we have. So there's a lot of things that they have not been doing on their end to rectify the model because they continue to push for a change in a two paramedic model um, instead of, of really looking at what are the things that, that can be happening right now um, to keep people here and to, um, and to attract people to be here. So I, I, I do think that um, it has been to their benefit to, to really push for the one paramedic, one EMT model. But again, that is not in their contract, and the change to the contract that that requires is a longer process. So it's not, it's not at a, um, it just isn't something that can happen overnight. The pilots, some of the things that we've tried to do to, to um, respond to the lack of staffing that are within the, the bounds of the contract, those are things that we need them to be fully engaged in, um, as well as keeping people here. And, uh, I so I, I appreciate, I, could I just the one, you mentioned AMR, that there are two paramedic models in other places. The two paramedic model at this point is an outlier, regardless of who the provider is. And so I can resend the, the research I did, all of the medical research on that. It is clearly the standard of care at this point to have a one, an, one paramedic, one EMT model. 
in addition, the fire paramedic from Portland Police, there is always a paramedic on truly emergency calls that is always there. So it's sort of a, it, you, can, you can cite data and statistics that have nothing to do with the, the clinical imperative. Fire paramedics respond to every true emergency that would even theoretically require two paramedics, which is not many. And, and so it is not AMR is doing it, it is an outlier. And the, if places do it, they have systems that are so well refined that they, they're well-oiled machines and know how to do a real triage system and have that function effectively. So I, would, I will send you, again, my research paper and maybe um, Commissioner Beeson hasn't received that. And I truly feel that citing the contract and having to consider re-procurement and do all of this stuff before doing what is set out in the ambulance service plan as the approach to just do it, as they say, I believe not doing this verges on criminally negligent. I mean, it is so harmful to individuals who don't get to the ER fast enough, who don't get the, the care they need, and I'm just gonna leave, with, leave you with putting yourself in the place of someone desperately in need for an ambulance for your loved one. And you call, first of all, no one answers, but once they do, you are waiting seconds that seem like minutes, minutes that then seem like hours for someone to get there to pick you up, do the quick things they can do and get you to the most important thing, getting to an ER provider. I would rather have one EMT and one paramedic one minute sooner any day than wait that extra minute for, for two paramedics to get there, one of whom is gonna drive me to the hospital. As an ER doctor for my family, that's what I would want. And I, I, I'm, I leave. Yeah. So I'm happy to send to everyone on the board the list of the cities that are still using um, two paramedic models because there are a lot of major cities, again, those that aren't actually using AMR as their ambulance service provider is kind of the consistent thing with that. Um, the other thing that I will say is um, it isn't the case that fire is going to all um, fire is having a paramedic come to all responses that need a two paramedic model and that is the crux of the difference between what we have here and what we don't. I think there's been enough questions raised about it that that having an answer to that question is something that we can do but again it's not that's not going to be a quick answer. Um, but I, but I, I just want to say that when we talk about what's happening in Clackamas County, what's happening in Washington County, they have different responses from their fire departments than what what the agreement here is in Multnomah County with, with Gresham Fire, with Portland Fire and others. So I wanna make that really clear. There is a fundamental difference than what we see in, in certain cities that have two paramedic models versus other cities or, or jurisdictions that don't. So I just wanna be that clear because I feel like we, we talk about these things again and again and I wanna make sure that that, that is very clear. So I wanna make sure that the other board members have time for, for their comments. So I'm gonna go ahead to um, Commissioner Beeson. Thank you, Chair. Um, I hadn't planned on it saying anything, but I, I guess I want to raise, and I have not met with AMR, but uh, you all know I have another day job. Uh, and in that day job, I have, 
I manage an endowment on behalf of the foundation and over 35% of that portfolio is in private equity. And we love private equity because it earns us a bunch of money. But I think the downside of private equity in particular when we think about um, its role in uh, acquiring corporations that are providing a public service like AMR is that the drive for profit can sometimes um, in particular from private equity investors, can sometimes change the flavor of um, uh, how services are delivered and resourced at the appropriate way. And I'm happy to have this conversation with AMR, but I do think it's important to note that private equity behind the scenes drives a lot of decisions um, that we might not understand are happening. So I hope as we have this conversation, and again, I don't pretend to be an expert, that that's part of our understanding or analysis about what some of those drivers might be. Uh, and because I seek to understand um, how and whether and how um, those dynamics are at play. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Bram Edwards. Thank you. Um, two issues that I wanted to raise. Uh, one, we, there was a sort of a roller coaster of news over the last couple of days about, um, you know, kind of blaring across the largest fentanyl bust um, in, um, there, there, there has been ever, and, you know, good work for the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office, and then, like, that was, that was the good part of it, and then there was the, oh, and um, that person has been released. And then the, the other good news is like, oh, they've got the person again. And I spent part of yesterday communicating with um, former DAs, um, former judges, to ask about like, how could, how could it have happened, trying to understand it, because if you read the news reports, which are likely written by lay people, um, and then translated into lay language, like how exactly could that have happened? Because um, I think in the community, the similar roller coaster of emotions of like, that's great, and then like, how could that have happened? And then, oh great, again. And but then the the analysis. So, um, it it's unclear um, where um, and what role the county um, had in sort of the chain of um, what happened, uh, whether it was um, you know something related to. Uh, the state matrix, because if it's a state matrix, is there something we need to you know, put prioritize into our um, legislative agenda, or was it the presiding judge's orders or interpretation or the discretion the presiding judge has, or it was how it was booked? It was was it something in, in the jails? What you know, what specifically led to that chain of events that um, led to the release of the individual who had been arrested for the the largest fentanyl bust. And so I, th I think it would be worthwhile for us to have an, an analysis of um, sort of what happened, just in the spirit of systems improvement, of like what happened and um, was there a piece in it that the county um, owns or should manage or should look at, ch at changing? Um, and, if, and if it's not if it's not the county, obviously that's something that we could own and um, do. But if it's something with the state and how the matrix works, um, and that you know we had to work, we worked with the matrix, and that just was the outcome. Uh, maybe we add something to our legislative agenda. Um, but I think it's worth because um, it's worth looking at because one of the responses I um, received and sort of the communications with again sort of former DAs and 
judges was like, this is not an isolated incident. It just was a very high profile um, one. So um, that would be a request and um, I would have that we, and it doesn't have to be at a, um, a uh, commission meeting, but could be just separate. But I, th I think that would be worth it for us to be able to answer the question of like where, what role the county has in that. Um, and then the second uh, piece also relates to fentanyl and uh, really um, sort of um, springboarding off of the um, legislative agenda that we talked about uh, today, but also following the governor's task force calling for the public health emergency. Um, I really would like the county to have a leadership role, just given that, given that we're the local uh, public health authority and we're at the epicenter of the fentanyl crisis. And I go back to just reflecting on my, I think it was my second, first or second meeting as a commissioner in June, um, we had a presentation on the fentanyl crisis and a slide um, that was presented to me was like very, did a really um, good job of illustrating the seriousness of the crisis it um, had in 2019. It was a sort of trend chart, sort of a generic trend chart that um, really didn't capture um, the human cost of the fentanyl crisis, but, um, but the numbers told the human um, cost of it, which was in 2019, there were 26 fentanyl deaths. And in 2022, there were 209. So a, a 10x um, increase. Um, that was, those are, again, the 2022 numbers. So I hope as we head into the, the new year, um, we look at like where the, the county can play a leadership role again. I, I, it's obviously a statewide issue, but really we're at the epicenter and um, with a new um, health department director, I feel like the, the county should be stepping into that role of county leadership. Um, and yes, it's gonna be, in, in, we're going to need the coordination of the city, the state, and a whole host of other um, partners but the county should be in a leadership position about talking about the issue that is um, resulting in, you know, county res hundreds of county residents losing their, their lives and something that we should have a specific strategy around and be focusing both our own resources, but also as we head into the legislative session, being able to talk about what we're doing and then what we need from the state. And I think we'll, just, we'll have a more, much more effective um, ask at the legislative session if we have, here's, here's what the county's doing um, in partnership with the city and what we need from the state in order to, to tackle it. Um, so I hope that that would be on our January agenda for us to discuss as a, as a commission. Thanks thank for you. the consideration. Yeah, thank consideration. you. And I, and I will say, I think um, just in regard to the, uh, well, I'm sure you've read all the, the articles around the, the arrest and the release and then the, I, you know, it, one of the, and I think this is a question, um, frankly, for the, for the sheriff's office is the, because it seems like the other two people who were held were because the federal charges came through and they were be able to held and there was a holdup for whatever reason and I don't know and I think that's worth investigating for that the third person, right, that they were. And so based on the presiding judge order, you know, the release criteria that was there were just on those other two warrants that were outstanding, but that those federal charges for whatever reason weren't, hadn't been brought down at that time. And so I, I know that there is already work that's happening between, um, you know, or there are conversations that are happening between uh, with the sheriff's department on 
how can these uh, additional information really be be shared ahead of time if there is for whatever reason a delay in in the charges that they want to bring um, being brought down so I think that um, I think these are really um, good and important questions and I think some they are already being asked and looked at and we can definitely um, make sure that um, that that information is is being shared like Leah for instance on my team has had lots and lots of conversations between DCJ, the sheriff's office, um, the jails, all of that on, on what's actually happening. Um, so that was part of like discussions that I was having yesterday as well. I guess one of the questions I would have is like, do we have to, re you know, do we want the standard to be we have to rely on federal charges? Um, if we have the largest fentanyl bust in state history, is it that the only way you could hold somebody is if you have a federal charge. And so that, I guess that would be my sort of deeper analysis. It's, and again, this isn't sort of a, a, um, looking at sort of who do we blame, but like are there gaps in the system that are leading, whether it's communication or just the, the, the standards um, to understand what those are. And again, not just looking at this, this was obviously a very high profile, but from my understanding is it's like it's not necessarily unusual to have um, this happen. So I, I think it's worth just looking at. We may decide like, yeah, we're, we're fine with where the state standard are, standards are and how it's interpreted by the presiding judge and how then the role, how the things get communicated to the sheriff's office. Um, I just think we should look a little bit more deeply versus just accepting like, phew, the, the person's back in, in custody on federal charges, but use it as a learning opportunity to, um, is there an improvement or changes we want to make in our systems? Yeah, yeah appreciate that. Uh, Commissioner Stegman. Thank you, Chair. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit. Uh, I want to acknowledge the fire that broke out at the bridge shop on Tuesday and express my gratitude to our Portland firefighters who I understand uh, had an overwhelming quick response and I'm so glad that everyone is safe uh, and that very people, very few people were there uh, when the fire broke out. Uh, coincidentally, just one day prior to the fire, I had visited the bridge shop, so I was like envisioning exactly the bay and everything. Um, I, I was there to meet with our bridge operators where I had the opportunity to listen to their concerns re regarding the lighting of our bridges. They shared their feelings and reactions to being ordered to light the Morrison Bridge in the colors of the Israeli flag for five days. And as you all know, our board was not unanimous. Uh, we did not have unanimous agreement with that decision. The board also received a joint letter from our employee resource groups on this matter. And I wanna thank each of the ERGs for sharing their ideas and suggestions on how local government can address the escalation of violence in Palestine and Israel. Along with the rise of Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, and I hope that we can take this opportunity to have a deeper dialogue about this and examine our procedures. It's important to recognize that there are employees and community members who have friends and relatives affected by this war. While others may have personally experienced the impacts of war, violence, displacement, and loss, and are now being re-traumatized by the current situation. The rise in Islamophobia, anti-Arab sentiment, and anti-Semitism in the United States is concerning. And I wanna say loudly and clearly that I condemn all forms of discrimination and violence. 
As elected officials, we must acknowledge the humanity of all of our residents and employees, which, which is why I fully support a ceasefire, the disbursement of humanitarian aid, and a passage to safety for the Palestinian people. I believe it's important to acknowledge and recognize the pain and distress that many of our employees are experiencing. I know we can do better as an organization as we look to the future. In that spirit, I would like to propose to my fellow board members that as an elected body, we consider the adoption of a policy requiring unanimous consent before allowing a bridge to be lit. Moving forward, I hope that we can do our best to make sure all members of our communities feel seen, heard, and valued in the face of hardship and in the absence of it, and that we can truly live up to our goal of creating a place where safety, trust, and belonging rings true for everyone. Also, uh, so I know that's, that's a little bit heavy, but uh, I'm hoping that we can have some uh, discussion uh, between us. Uh, but uh, this is our, I believe this is our last board meeting uh, for the year, and I just want to express uh, my gratitude for my colleagues, uh, for our directors, for our 6,000 employees who deliver the work day in and day out, and often uh, without much praise or appreciation, and I hope that we all have some time to spend with our families, our loved ones, our communities, and reflect uh, about the good things that we do have in our community. So I just want to wish everyone a happy and joyous holiday. Thank you, Commissioner Stegman. I, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and for your leadership in reaching out to the, the bridge operators to have the conversation with them. We've received a couple different letters, and I know that's been shared with the whole board around um, this. And so there are, you know, really strong feelings about this. I, you know, above all, I think Multnomah County employees should feel safe in their workplace, even when they can't feel safe in the world at large. Um, and I. I really regret that the way that things happened at this, um, you know, with the board actions may have resulted in employees feeling unsafe in their workplace. Um, you know, this is a, such a traumatic time in the world when people are impacted by conflict near and far. Um, and so I also, you know, I, I really wish for peace for um, everyone who's impacted by the conflict in, in so many different ways and that we have an end to the ongoing crisis that we're in, the humanitarian crisis that we're in. With that situation, so I appreciate um, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I also this is the the last meeting of the year, so thank you for acknowledging that. Um, I did I did want to share real quick. I did get the list of the cities that have the two paramedic model. So New York City, Seattle King County, Boston, Denver, Houston, Los Angeles County, San Antonio, Minneapolis, Pittsburgh, Paris, and London. So just so um, so anyway, so thank you all for this. We will. Um, I, I can't believe it's like just been a year that I've been sitting in this chair because it feels in some ways very, very short and in some ways very long, but um, just appreciate um, the partnership and um, having new colleagues here in these seats. Um, then we're here a year ago and um, uh, we have a lot of good work ahead of us, but hopefully people time, find time for relaxing, rejuvenating um, over the next couple of weeks. And with that, we are adjourned. <laughs>